Turn it on and rip the knob off. Hey guys, it's Ray Russell here with the Wrestling Memory Grenade. This is episode 18. And of course, joining me as always, my co-host Steve Ekstad. Steve, welcome back once more. Happy to be here, man. Moving right along, huh? Yeah, and we're we're just over a week out from Christmas already. I can't believe it, it came here so fast. This, this I couldn't believe it, you know, with the COVID and, and this uh, year feeling like it's it's just lasted forever and ever and ever. Christmas season is really flowing right by, at least for me, anyway. Yeah, it, it's coming up on us quick, man. It, it definitely has. For, for everything that's gone so slow this year, Christmas is the one thing that gets here rapidly. Uh, I guess that's a good thing. Christmas is the best time of year for a lot of people, so I'm excited for Christmas and uh, this episode of the Memory Grenade. Yeah, and you know, I usually make myself, and I think we talked about this on an episode of Monday Warfare, but I usually make myself a little list of TV, uh, movies, Christmas movies that I like to watch every year. And every year I put it off, I procrastinate because the closer in my in my mind, in, in theory, the closer it is to Christmas when I watch them, the more meaningful they are to me. But I, I put it off until it's so close to where I run out of time and I don't actually get to see the movies and I have no interest in watching them after Christmas. So I kind of ruin it for myself. So this year I'm hoping, hoping to get at least a few of my favorites in before the, the holiday actually gets here. Well, good luck to you on your your quest there to watch some Christmas movies. <laughs> I already got my Home Alone in uh, back in November when we put the Christmas tree up, so uh, I'm pretty good. I'm set. I'm set. Yeah, and we're just over a week out from Christmas, but next week we still plan to be here. We may record a few days early, but the plan right now is for the grenade to go on without a hitch on Christmas week with another two weeks of NWA goodness, and we'll be moving into the first two weeks of September on next week's episode of The Grenade. And two weeks from now, New Year's week, it's our next watch-along edition of The Grenade as we'll be reviewing the Clash of the Champions 8 Fall Brawl heading into 2021. Wow, already in September. It seems like just yesterday we started this thing, and, and here we are. Yep, yep, yep. But we still got, what, a third, of the, a third of the year to go. But yeah, it's crazy to think that September... Once we close out today, we're finishing up today's, uh, we're going to be finishing up August today with the final two weeks of August, and what a final two weeks of August it is. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that as we get the show going. I want to remind everybody to check us out on Twitter. You can check us out at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. You can follow us there at WrestleCopia, that's at WrestleCopia. You can also follow us on Twitter at our sister program, Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. We're at Monday Warfare on Twitter if you want to check out the Monday Warfare Twitter account. And, of course, as always, we're at Rasslin Grenade. That's it, R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, home of the free prize giveaway. And speaking of giveaways, Steve, do you have anything in mind, or are we going to put everything off till the new year? I'm still cooking up something. I'll figure something out that we can announce. That'll be given away. I could say the Clash a couple weeks from now. We'll, we'll have something for New Year's and Christmas. All right, well, don't wait too long now. Christmas just over a week away. We'll get it up on Twitter, so you guys keep checking back on Twitter and see what we can put up here in the next week or so. Let's talk a little bit about the NWA before we get into the shows. Not a whole lot to talk about because we spent an hour 
Last week on The Grenade, talking about all the news and notes going on over the summer, the fallout from Great American Bash heading into the fall. But the big news, the biggest piece of news anyway, is that Ric Flair is now in charge of the booking committee. He's the ultimate decision maker. But it's not a very smooth sailing here out of the gate for the Nature Boy. That's an understatement. (laughs) As far as production and TV and everything's going, definitely not smooth sailing at all. Not what you uh, want if you're taking over a new position in a company. Yeah, and luckily Ric Flair's been around the block. Maybe he hasn't seen anything like this before, but at least he's been around long enough to where hopefully this didn't really impact him too much. But I I can't imagine. I think this would shake anybody up a little bit at the very least. Uh, There's no way it couldn't. There's absolutely no way it couldn't. And before we get going, we're going to kick things off with the power hour here in a second for the week of August 18th, 1989. But before we do, we'll be back. Check out these brief but important messages. The Wrestling Memory Grenade is proud to announce the launch of WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You've probably heard me mention in passing all the way back to episode one of the Grenade, the WrestleCopia brand. You may be asking, what is WrestleCopia? The name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's an abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast network gets up and running with a variety of podcasts slated to launch over the course of the fall season. Everything from our show The Grenade to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. We've done a couple pieces already in the Bullet Bob Armstrong special and more recently, What a Rush, a tribute to Road Warrior Animal Peace. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts this holiday season, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser-known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear that remains an enigma. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter at WrestleCopia for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW, Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, the Battles Within, exclusively on WrestleCopia.com. I want to give a big shout out to the one and only Retro Network. That's the Retro Network. You can find their site over at theretronetwork.com. Join Jason, Mickey, and the crew as they do a deep dive into eras gone by and especially the 80s and 90s. Two decades I'm happy to admit I grew up in. The Retro Network offers a little bit of everything for everyone who's looking to relive those youthful memories, grab hold of that nostalgic feeling, 
or for you youngins out there who want to see what the fuss was all about. We're talking podcasts, music playlists, articles covering everything from movie reviews to toys to cartoons and everything in between. They even have great holiday theme posts going on. There's great videos featuring segments like the Wax Pack Flashback where they unseal decades-old trading cards. I find myself having fun every time I visit, and there's always something new for you to enjoy every day you pop on there. You can follow the Retro Network on Twitter at TRN Social, and their website again is theretronetwork.com. Please come relive your childhood with Jason, Mickey, and the crew at theretronetwork.com. All right, guys, and we're back, and it's time for another two weeks of NWA goodness for 1989, kicking things off for the weekend of August 18th with the NWA Power Hour, taped on August 14th, Charleston, West Virginia, at the Civic Center. We kicked things off with Jim Ross and Jim Cornette having some fun with an Inquirer-type newsletter. Jim Ross has apparently fathered a child in Tibet. Ross says, again? Corny shows JR the picture. Jim Ross asks Corny, well, what do you think? Corny says, send her a check. Jim Ross will get his lawyers to handle this. And that's the way we kick off the power hour this week. Having some fun. The, uh, the duo of Jim Ross and Jim Cornette once again. Yeah, they're definitely, I think they're enjoying their time here together. It almost feels like it's more relaxed than other shows because it is a Friday night. So they're just playing off of that and having a good time. And they crack me up every day, every week that I tune in. They're just having a great time together. Really, really good. Almost gorilla and Bobby esque, but they're both, they both like each other on TV here for now anyway. Yeah, they get along for now, Jim Cornette, a baby face for the moment anyway. And we go to the ring for our first match. It's Ron Simmons taking on Sting for what I feel like is the third time uh, over the course of the last few months. This time, though, it's a little different. Ron Simmons seems to be getting a little more of a push, a little more offense in here. It's very fast-paced once they get going. Uh, they're their best fight yet of the three anyway. Ron sells big for Sting early on, tries to take a backflip bump off of a clothesline for Sting. Crazy to see Ron Simmons try to take a backflip bump. Uh, Sting dropkicks Ron out of the ring. Ron fights back in with punches and sends Sting over the top rope. Ron goes to the top rope. Sting actually shakes the rope intentionally, crotching Ron Simmons on the top rope. And again, no disqualification. What's going on here? It's NWA refereeing. That's what it is. Absolutely. What was funny was, I, I don't know if you put it in your notes, it was just very unique and weird. Maybe not in a good way, but after Ron crotches himself on the top rope, Sting gets down on his back and starts kicking upwards at Ron, and it just looked really funny. I really had never yeah. seen so, so, something like that done before, and he kicks Ron out of the ring. Yeah, uh, it's definitely man, awkward looking, but it, yeah, it was different. It, it, it was cool. definitely different, yeah. It fit Sting, it fit Sting for yeah. 1989, the dude having fun in the ring, and this move kind of personifies that a little bit. It's definitely awkward looking, but it fits. They trade control in the match a couple more times. And again, the, the pace continued to be pretty fast offense from both sides. Ron takes Sting to the outside, posts him. Sting return drops Ron across the railing. So it's back and forth on the floor now. They're using the guardrail. They're using the ring post. Still no disqualification. Ron Simmons tries to suplex Sting back into the ring, but Sting floats over into a schoolboy. Gets the win in 10 minutes and 46 seconds. Easily their best and most competitive match of the trio they've had here in 1989. You can definitely tell Ron Simmons. I don't know where he's been. He's kind of been off and on a little bit throughout the year. Um, he kind of disappeared there after the rumors of him turning down the Ebony experience. 
But ever since he's been back and he's getting that little bit of push with Iron Sheik, he seems to be a lot better in the ring. Uh, he's definitely more polished. He's getting a little bit more action. And he's handling it. He, you know, some people get the ball and they just drop it. And he's doing pretty good. I mean, he looks really solid these last few weeks. And uh, I, I'm enjoying some Ron Simmons right now. Yeah, definitely he, way more than I was at the beginning of the year. He, uh, he owes it all to Sheiky, baby. Ron Simmons has a right. new attitude. And the flag of the Ayatollah. <laughs> it's that time again of the week. It's time for Ah! Ah, Gordon Soley and WNN Clash of the Champions 8 Fall Brawl coming September 12th, which is our next watch along, by the way. Ric Flair teams with The Sting to take on Terry Funk and the Great Muda in the main event of Clash of the Champions. We also learn that Davey Boy Smith is still recuperating from his auto accident that took place back on July 4th in Stampede. Top Japanese star in training, says Gordon Soley, for Ric Flair and the World Heavyweight title. Could it be the Great Muda? <laughs> that would be very depressing if that's who it winds up being, not because it's Muda, but because you sell it as a top Japanese star as if they're coming into town, but then pondering, could it be Muda? Well, that seems pretty obvious then, Gordon. <laughs> Just a little bit disappointing that there's not a lot of other information coming from the WNN. It kind of just feels like Gordon got his legs cut out from under him as far as what he wanted the WNN to be by now. It's right. already, the mystique's gone. Yeah. Seems like they're relegated to almost, almost no WWF talk anymore, and maybe they're relegated down to one mention of one territory. It seems like it's usually Dallas. This week it's Stampede and Davy Boy. We also hear about the top ten once again. Gordon mentions it's now listed in the Wrestling Wrap-Up magazine, so that sounds like it, it won't be changing more than uh, maybe once a month. Gordon wants to talk about the difference in wrestling from his time, from his heyday into 1989 here. Wrestlers are getting bigger. Wrestlers are getting stronger. The skyscrapers are now bigger than the roadies. Can the roadies continue their dominance is the question Gordon ponders here with the skyscrapers now. Basically, they're trying to sell the skyscrapers as the next road warriors. Yeah, and they keep on. I know a lot of the teams in this company are talking about the team of the 90s. I know Cornette mentions it that the Midnights were the team of the 80s, they're going to be the team of the 90s. Um, I, I think the Freebirds have mentioned it. Uh, the Skyscrapers on commentary, they're not necessarily saying it, but the commentary teams are really trying to push it over that they're going to be the team of the 90s and things like that. So uh, I think this is just another one of those things to where they're um, just doing those little subtle things, those subtle comments to get the uh, Skyscrapers over uh, as this massive team, and that they are. I mean, they really are that. Show continues on. It's world champion Ric Flair in the ring here on the Power Hour, taking on the Cuban assassin, Fidel Sierra. We hear Lance Russell and Bob Cottle on commentary, so you have to assume this was recorded on an episode of Pro or uh, at a pro taping. Ric Flair gives Fidel Sierra some offense early on. Uh, Flair takes the post, eats the post outside, and gets a beat down on the floor by the Cuban assassin. Man, that Iron Sheik, uh, he's really paying off for the Cuban and, and Ron Simmons. <laughs> Little bit. Flair takes the flip into the corner, lands on the apron, but he's a baby face. So he connects with an elbow off the top rope and then the big knee drop. I found it really funny here. Lance Russell, not once but twice during commentary, says, Woo! And I loved hearing Lancer do that. I hadn't really ever heard Russell do that before, so it's fun. Chops are traded between Ric Flair and the Cuban. Of course, the Flair wins that one, and a figure four gets the win in five minutes, five seconds. The Assassin got just the right amount of offense, I felt, but... Playing off of Flair's injuries from the bash was a wise move here. Uh, normally, maybe a little too much offense, but I love that Flair was playing off. Uh, he was still selling from the pay-per-view. And, and I noticed on commentary, and I, wa I had wondered early on, Flair took the post really early in the match, and he had been split open at the bash. 
So Cornette mentions near the end of the match that Flair was bleeding. Uh, Cuban had reopened the injury, uh, the wound on Ric Flair's forehead. I didn't see any blood, though. I didn't either. I, I did I did hear him talk about it, and I thought initially when he hit the post, it looks like he was uh, blading a little bit. Like he was laying on the mat, and you kind of covering his face where he couldn't really see it. So I thought he was going to. Um, but when he came up, there's definitely no blood on his face, so I, I didn't see it either. But uh, it did look like he was going to be. I think I initially had in my notes that he did blade. Uh, you can see it, and then he came up, and there was no blood anywhere. So um, leave it to Ric Flair to try to, to try to blade for the Cuban assassin. <laughs> Are you surprised? I guess not. I shouldn't be. It's Ric Flair, and it's time for yeah. your favorite segment of the week. It's Funk's Grill, and once again, it's Norman the Lunatic. I'm sorry, Norman the Maniac. And Teddy Long, again, third time in like four weeks. And this week it was supposed to be Brian Pillman, but it's Terry Funk's show, and he called Norman to be back out here. Norman the Maniac. He's not the lunatic. And Terry Funk rocking a I Am a Funker t-shirt. And uh, Funk reminds everyone not to drink their milk or take their vitamins. Don't change your underwear for 30 days, and you can be a Funker too, Steve. Yeah, he's basically telling everybody not to be a funker. But yeah, this was a complete and utter train wreck. I, I didn't find it, I didn't find any redeeming qualities out of this at all. Just a complete waste of time. Over on the Warfare show, we got Brother Love back, and within two episodes of the Brother Love show, they've got two angles over, and one of them was very well done to hype up a pay per view match. Funk's Grill's been going on for since June, and it's accomplished absolutely nothing. Yeah, uh, at this point, point, at this point, over the last, uh, over the course of the last month, it's just as much Norman's show as it is Terry Funk's. It feels like, and that's not a very good thing. And uh, no. somehow, the topic of the Road Warriors comes up here during this segment. And Norman says he likes the Road Warriors, so Terry's going to make him look like a Road Warrior. They sit Norman down. Terry Funk gets out some shears. He's going to cut Norman's hair into the shape of the Road Warriors' haircut, but then he stops short and says, "No." He's going to save it for Brian Pillman next week. They're going to invite Brian Pillman onto the show and cut his hair. And they're giving him a whole week's notice. Yeah. So why would Pillman even show up? Like you're going to cut my hair. It's three on one here. Essentially. Why would you even show up? It makes you look like an idiot. You would think that would be the logic, but let's see what happens next week. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see what happens. Main event of the power hour sees United States heavyweight champion, the total package Lex Luger take on Tommy rich. Coming out to all my rowdy friends. Our first go-around with these two, on TV anyway. You've heard tell of the forever stamp, Steve. Tommy Rich has the forever armbar. It just goes on forever. That's no lie, man. It feels like uh, that's the only movie he has in his repertoire. And uh, he does it to jobbers. He does it it to anybody. Um, (laughs) And then that's it. And then all of a sudden he does a hot comeback that nobody cares about. And uh, does the best press. Somebody say something about arm bars tommy rich gets fired up and locks in an arm bar can you imagine if he wasn't fired up what we would get in the ring <laughs> oh my god oh lord is it, I, I gotta ask is it him like just getting back into ring shape or is this how he always was you gotta remember tommy never really fell out of the business he just fell out of the the public eye he was still working the smaller territories down in georgia and in, in alabama and you know, he had time in Memphis, him and Austin Idol with the big long feud with Jerry Lawler, managed by uh, Paulie Dangerously. So Tommy's been around. He just hasn't been, uh, you know, on the national scale. And he's, yes, he is a little out of shape. I just feel that 
it's just like some of these other guys that haven't gotten with the times offensively. They're still working that, you know, old school, I don't know, I don't want to call it just 70s because there was a lot of great talent that could do a lot more than arm bars in the 70s, early 80s. But Tommy just hasn't gotten with the times yet. I think things pick up for him eventually. I don't remember it being this bad later on. I know he had some great matches throughout the course of the rest of his time here. I, I remember a great match with him and Ricky Morton against the Midnights at, you know, at Halloween Havoc next year. But uh, here, yeah, here so far, it's that Iron Sheik, Bob Orton, Junkyard Dog, Butch Reed syndrome, you know, from the uh, era just before the late 80s. And he just hasn't adapted yet, at least to the NWA anyway. I, I don't know, maybe he's just getting his feet wet still. I, I'm not sure what's going on here. But uh, in this match, Lex Luger lures Tommy to chase him around ringside, and Luger catches him with a really good knee as Tommy tries to come back in the ring. Seven minutes into the match, Lex Luger takes control. I'll let you guess what happened the first six minutes, 59 seconds. Here's a hint. There was an arm bar involved. Arm drags and arm bars. (laughs) If it involved the arm, Tommy Rich is doing it. Tommy Rich winds up landing into a chair. Rich fights back. Lex plows his face off, however, with a clothesline on the floor. That was great. He just ripped his face off. Lex Luger doesn't give these guys a a moment to sell or to get prepared. He just (laughs) launches that clothesline into their jaw. Pretty fun. (laughs) <laughs> and the most eventful thing that happened in this match up until this point. Yeah, that's about it. I mean, there's really not a lot to these Tommy Rich matches, and no. I just don't see it. How the hell did they decide to give this guy the belt? I, no. and obviously, he wants really different. But. Yeah, and I got a couple of notes on that later on uh, in these shows. Lots of hope spots for Tommy Rich, though, until Rich catches Luger with a punch to the gut as Lex comes flying off the top rope. Comeback by Tommy Rich. Shitty-looking Fez press that Lex kicks out of. By God, Lex Luger kicked out of the shitty-looking Fez press. And Tommy didn't even bother to cradle the legs with the move, so what do you expect? But uh, Luger, in their very first encounter on a power hour, is kicking out of Tommy Rich's finisher. Tommy's still on the comeback, though, with a Jerry Lawler fist drop, bringing back some Memphis right there. Lex Luger rolls to the apron. Luger gets up to his feet with a shoulder block to the gut of Tommy Rich, and instead of bending over, Tommy Rich takes a back bump. From, the, from his shoulder block to the gut. And Luger kind of dives through the ropes on top of Tommy, leaving his feet on the middle rope for extra leverage. And Lex Luger gets the win in 12 minutes and 32 seconds. And it was blatant. The feet on the ropes were so blatant that Luger was literally bridging over top of referee Tommy Young while making the cover. And yet some, somehow Tommy Young uh, didn't figure out that, that Luger had his feet on the ropes. I guess he just thought half of Luger's body had, it, it was missing. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just absolutely ludicrous for me to believe that Tommy Young didn't notice Lex's feet around the ropes when they were basically over top of Tommy's head. Yeah, I don't know how you missed that one. I mean, but again, we, we've talked about this ad nauseum throughout the year. The referee, yeah, you have some great referees here. Tommy Young, Nick Patrick. It doesn't get much better than that, honestly. They just do what they want to do. They know what They know what the finish is or they know what is coming as far as them being in their position and they – whether they're in position or not to see it or not see it, they don't care. They're not going to call it because they know they're not supposed to. It's very obvious at times how terrible they're missing things or how obvious they're selling it as if they're, I've seen quite a few videos of Tommy Young just looking into this guy because he knows a wrestler is about to do something. And that, if that doesn't give it away, I don't know what does. And this week's rest of the week is, I don't know because the video cuts out and, and we're left to ponder for the rest of our lives, I suppose. 
But what a stacked show it was. I mean, maybe not the best of opponents, but you had U.S. heavyweight champion Lex Luger defending his title, world champion Ric Flair in a match on Power Hour. Ron Simmons versus Sting wasn't too shabby either. A really stacked show for a late-night you know, event like the Power Hour. I mean, if I'm watching TGIF, and I, back then, uh, Spotlight, WWE Spotlight in my era, area came out at 10 o'clock. And I think this Power Hour was actually delayed as well. And I'm turning on Power Hour at, say, you know, 11 o'clock at night. I'm enjoying the hell out of this show. I mean, this is great. You get Ric Flair, Lex Luger, Sting versus Ron Simmons. Not a bad card slapped together here this week for the Power Hour. No, definitely not. They haven't given up on the show just yet. Like, a lot of times when you get a new show, it's kind of cool for a couple weeks. And then they just let it drift away. Whereas the Power Hour, since its inception, has really had at least one good match or one good angle or something on each and every show that, uh, that's been entertaining. So, And this show is no different. This one's, like you said, one of those more stacked shows match-wise. Yeah, very, very, very entertaining. We move on to August 19th in NWA Pro. We're back in Baton Rouge, <laughs> Louisiana at the Centriplex. I believe this was taped somewhere around the August 1st or 2nd. Lance Russell, Bob Cottle still on commentary, thank God. Sting in the ring taking on from the bayou. It's Frogman LeBlanc. Once again, I, I think I mentioned this on an episode or uh, two ago that Frogman LeBlanc was actually the first opponent of one Stone Cold Steve Austin way back in the day in Dallas. Sting goes into the crowd before the match playing in the crowd. He's the people's champion. He's not the champion anymore, but he's, he's the fans champion anyway at this point. Gary Hart with an insert promo. More of the same from Gary Hart on the promo. Frogman tries to jump the Stinger, doesn't work, and a Stinger splash and a Scorpion wins this one pretty easily in one minute and 30 seconds. Sting went all the way up in the crowd, though. He was like almost 10 rows deep yeah. uh, when he came out, which is pretty cool. Uh, you didn't really see that very often back then as far as like an insurance or anything, but that was, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, it seems like something Sting's starting to try to add to his entrance. Uh, he does it again in a week or two. And Jim Ross mentions that Sting's entrance took longer than his match because I think he beats uh, the job guy in like a half a minute or so. So <laughs> it's just uh, something new Sting's trying out at this point. Just another way to get over with the fans. Not that he really needs to do it. He doesn't need that uh, cheap heat. Not not that, that it's cheap heat, but Sting just doesn't even need it. If he didn't do it, he'd still be as over as he is. Whereas, you know, if it was somebody else, <laughs> they were just trying anything at that point. Sting's just, uh, it just feels natural. Again, like you pointed out with that spot earlier, this just feels like something Sting would do. Best way to sum it up. Teddy Long promo time. Flying Brian has landed. They have gotten rid of Brian Pillman. That's a silly statement considering he's been all over TV, including challenging Norman on television last week on World Championship Wrestling. Teddy Long says Norman is just getting started. And it's back to the ring for Terry Funk. In a rematch with one Gator or Big or you take your pick of Scott Hall. Funk, of course, accompanied to the ring by Gary Hart. This is a rematch. Uh, Scott Hall and Terry Funk first met in Amarillo. Uh, if you remember, the man who wrestles the Gators is how, is how he's referred to this week. <laughs> what a silly introduction. Uh, Bob Cottle says Scott Hall wrestles Gators, but here's a rattlesnake. I like that line from Bob Cottle referencing uh, Terry Funk as the rattlesnake. Yeah, definitely a good way to get Terry Funk over because you just you never know what you're going to get. And Hall doesn't get talked about a lot here about getting the ball dropped on him. You know the dynamic dudes, obviously they do with the terrible gimmick. But Scott Hall, man, this guy had a hell of a look and he was Nothing decent else. in the ring. He was doing stuff that he definitely shouldn't have been doing, but somebody should have took him to the side, helped him out, and then gave him something. But they just 
totally dropped the ball with this guy in 89. Funk hits the ring half the size of Scott Hall, but that doesn't matter. He mauls Scott Hall until Funker finally misses a charge into the corner. Hall works an armbar, so he's been learning from Tommy Rich here. Terry pulls both of them over the top rope. They both bump to the floor. Tr- Terry Funk with a trifecta of neck breakers tries a pile driver, but Scott Hall backdrops him onto the apron. Scott Hall drags Terry in and nails a bulldog for a two count. Hall grabs a side headlock on the mat, and this was uh, really intriguing. We've seen this spot done for years and years. I've never seen someone use it and actually get the win, but Scott Hall hooks a side headlock on the mat, and Terry Funk rocks it over into a cradle, and Terry puts his feet on the rope for added leverage and actually gets the pin. It finally worked. Funk with the win in 5 minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah, and I also like the fact that Terry Funk hasn't just came out and just totally buried this dude. Both of their matches, like it was, uh, I don't even think you beat him with the pile driver and, and Amarillo. I, but uh, Hall got a lot of action, a lot of uh, offense in, in Amarillo. And this was a back and forth match where Funk never really was in complete control, where you ever felt like Hall was just getting destroyed. So I, I think Funk did a good job of protecting Hall here, even though he really had no reason to do it. So maybe he's seen something that others didn't. He didn't want to completely bury him because uh, maybe he saw something there. But, yeah, very entertaining match, just like the other one. Post-match, Terry Funk tries to attack Scott Hall, but gets slammed out of the ring. While Gary Hart distracts Scott, Funk comes in back with the branding iron and nails Scott Hall after all. So that's the end of the uh, Funk and Scott Hall situation. It's 2-0 for Terry Funk. And this match was not nearly as good as their first match, I didn't think. I thought they, they did a lot more more fun spots than the, the first encounter. Yeah, Terry was at home that one. So I think they knew the crowd was in it. I think that helped a lot, too. The crowd wasn't as into this one as the other one either. So the crowd definitely really enhanced that first one. World champion, fabulous Freebirds to the ring. It's Hayes and Garvin because Gordy's gone. Taking on Bob Emery and Mike Justice. Michael Hayes to the floor and dear God, he even stalls during squash matches. It's Jimmy Garvin with the DDT on Mike Justice and the birds get the win in two minutes and 52 seconds. And uh, I thought Gordy was gone, but uh, to my surprise, following the match, though he wasn't at ringside for the match, it's promo time and Lance Russell interviews the Freebirds with Terry Bam Bam Gordy, and they mock how stupid Rick Steiner is. Uh, easy to do. Mike Rotunda's been doing that for about a year. The Freebirds called the Steiners' win over them last week, uh, the nine-title win over them, a fluke. And even though he's here at the taping, Gordy is gone, theoretically, and it sucks. Yeah, he's really the only part that's decent. I, I think the main note that I have down here is I hate hearing uh, Leonard Skinner music just because I know shit's coming. <laughs> and uh, whenever I hear that music, I, I know the birds are coming, and that's a bad time. So, um the quicker these matches are, they're fine as long as they're in squashes. They just need to go away. It's time for Pettisino Knows. What does he know this week? He's the off-camera ring announcer in Baton Rouge, he tells us. Wow. Thanks for sharing, Joe. And uh, we, we may mention this last week, but no more desk for Joe Pettisino. They're making him stand, uh, trying to get a little exercise. They don't want him to die on their watch, I suppose. Pettisino talks flair and funk, sting and muda, trouble with Paulie and the SST, a basic episode of Pettisino knows they've uh, once again moved away from selling or shilling anything to do with the house show. It appears we get a skyscrapers video, long time coming. Awesome video. They just murder everyone. 
we even get like a random cameo of Norman mugging in, in the middle of the video, which, so there's a little bit of comedy mixed in with the uh, violence going on. We see a clip of the Ding Dongs getting destroyed as well here. This is not from the match upcoming. This is actually from the match uh, from the episode of Pro that we were missing. So at the very least, we got to see one move <laughs> from that match, and it was just, it was just the skyscrapers obliterating the Ding Dongs uh, and everyone else in this video as well. Yeah, this this is awesome. I mean, outside of the Norman spot, I have no idea why they added that in there. Um, I thought it was funny. It, it was funny, but I don't I don't know. It, we talked about that too. It just kind of takes away from them a little bit. Um, but it was funny in the video. But yeah, this video was awesome, man. They just destroyed the shit out of these guys. And the video was well done. I thought like uh, they've dropped the ball on some these dynamic dude videos and arguably oh, yeah. the Scott Hall videos where you can't tell what his gimmick is, but. It wasn't like they, they threw together a skyscrapers video. They took two matches and, you know, they, they showed clips of him punching and kicking. They actually, they knew what to show in this video. It was murder. So it was a j- job well done. Yeah, there's no gimmicks, no nothing. It was just them destroying jobbers and everybody that they fought so far. So, I mean, that, that's all you really need to do to get these guys over. It's the Midnight Express taking on Trent Knight and Ron Simmons. And the storyline continues. As the Iron Sheik comes down to ringside and gets Ron Simmons to leave his partner again. How many times is he going to do this? I wish I had started counting at the beginning, but it's got to be three or four times now. Double flapjack. And Bobby Eaton gets the win on Trent Knight in two minutes, 11 seconds after Ron Simmons abandons his partner once more. You got to be stupid to sign up to be Ron Simmons' partner. It doesn't make sense. and To me, like after a certain point, which is usually one or two times you're just insulting the intelligence of your fans. Like, are you serious again? Like another person is this stupid to tag with Ron? Like, come on now, do something different or have an idea where you want to go with this and get it there rather quickly. So you don't get that time to insult the intelligence of people. Just stupid. It's more Petticino knows, and he has to make mention that he's hot under the lights here in Baton Rouge, just trying to get himself over again because this particular Petticino knows it doesn't take place in the crowd. It actually takes place in front of a green screen. So he's not even really in Baton Rouge when he's recording this. But in order to put over that he's in Baton Rouge and he's doing the ring announcing, he has to mention it again. He has to find a way to work the words Baton Rouge into this Petticino knows. This guy just can't help but get himself over. <laughs> I can't wait to get to something Joe says here uh, next week before we close the show. Anyways, here Joe talks about the Iron Sheik. He thinks the Iron Sheik is up to something with Ron Simmons. Wow, nothing gets past Joe Pettacino. It's called Pettacino Knows. So Joe says he needs to prove that he knows, and he's going to get to the bottom of this and see what's going on with the Sheik and Ron Simmons. It's as plain as day, asshole. It's been all over the TV for weeks now. Stop stuffing your face and watch the product, fuckbag. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I think you said it best right there. There's no need to comment on that. Johnny Ace oh, is out with a cheekbone deal. They show the canteen clip once more. So, yeah, Johnny Ace selling a injury from the New Zealand militia. That'll get you over. It's main event time with Captain Mike Rotunda taking on Dr. Death in match number three in what was originally the scientific challenge turned no-holds-barred, no-DQ match here in match number three. And, of course, this inadvertently accidentally aired last week on the main event. So we've already seen this match, but... Let's pretend like we didn't here. This is technically the rubber match as Dr. Death lost the first one by disqualification and pinned Mike Rotunda in the second of the three matches in the series. 
Punches are thrown immediately here because now it's no DQ. Doc whips straight to the floor. The match is up and down, back and forth. Doc charges for a tackle. Rotunda pulls Tommy Young in the way. Doc goes for an Oklahoma stampede, hits it, makes the cover, but Teddy Long is out because Tommy Young is down. Teddy Long counts to three. Dr. Death thinks he gets the win. Then he turns around and realizes it was Teddy Long who made the count. Doc goes after Teddy Long, but Rotunda from behind with a knee in the back and a roll-up as Mike Rotunda gets the win in seven minutes. Any more comments, any more thoughts on this match? I know we talked about it last week, but any follow-up you want to do for anyone who's just tuning in this week? No, like, uh, I'm with you, man. Like, why have a tournament, a two out of three for of scientific wrestling just to get to an ODQ? Why not have Mike Rotunda win twice out of three times by having Doc get DQ'd and then Doc challenge him to a match for no, with no disqualification? Like, that makes way more sense. This was just a complete waste of time. And I don't know if you as a fan, this is a perfect way to look at it, but are you, do you ever get to the point where you just see something that's completely ridiculous that makes no sense? And then the next time they try something similar that you don't even give it the time of day, you're just like, they're just going to mess this up. Do you ever feel that way as a fan or do you just give every individual story or. No. Yeah. Yeah. Concept um, I felt that way for about three years straight. Does that count? 2018, <laughs> 19, 20. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I, I'm talking back then. Like, no, I, I think ever... I think I separated everything. I was eager for anything. You, you're going to throw anything at me. I want to see it. If it bombs, then it bombs. But let's move on to the next thing, and I'm excited for that. You know, it, it, it's a different era. You know, so you just yeah, because I, I would say more often than not, whatever they do works because right. of, just because of the the audience. I the, can't say that this wouldn't have worked if they if the continuity had made a little more sense, if the production had made a little more sense. Uh, it was hard following. You know, you have two matches in the best of three series, but then your third match that airs on World Championship Wrestling has nothing to do with the series. It's like you couldn't save that for another week, so th- that made it confusing. And then they accidentally air this match, match three, last week instead of match two. So we saw the winner. We already knew the outcome. We saw matches two and three basically over the course of 24 hours last week. So here on pro this week, even though we weren't supposed to see it, we've already seen it. So it's just, uh, I blame production as much as anything else, but yeah, we talked about that last week. It would have made far more sense to give Rotunda the win here in the two out of three series leading into the no DQ uh, match as their fourth match. Instead, I, I felt like they just rushed things along. I don't know. Uh, this was pre-Ric Flair booking, though, so what are you going to do? Yeah, hopefully it gets better. No promos this week, barely at all. I thought that was kind of odd. Uh, there's no continuity. Some weeks we get like eight promos. Some weeks almost none. I, I don't. I, you never know what to expect on these syndicated shows. Yeah, at least they got the commentators figured out, and it's consistent week over week. So you know you're watching the, the same show. But what you get on that show is <laughs> it's up in the air and debatable. I don't know how Lance and how much longer Lance and Bob last together, but for as long as they have been, I'm just going to keep enjoying it. I know Chris Cruz is headed in. Eventually, Terry Funk's going to move over to commentary. So that's much, much later on. But uh, at the moment, I, I, I love me some Lance and Bob, and that was uh, a fun little episode of Pro as we move on to NWA Worldwide for August 19th taped in Cleveland, Ohio at the convention center from August 15th. So we're really fresh here. Just four days after the taping, we opened the show with a promo from Jim Cornette 
and the Midnight Express when the A&W Cream Soda King of the Slams. Holy shit. There's a trophy. And we have winners. We have a payoff. <laughs> Can you believe it? This has been going on seemingly forever. Basically almost the entire year, it feels like, anyway. And we finally get one of our winners here. We're going to get the other winner later on. I won't spoil that. I know everybody's anticipating that. But the Midnight Express are your tag team King of the Slams trophy winners here. Yeah. I, I know we discussed if there's ever a payoff. And I saw this and I was like, oh, shit, we got a payoff. Because a lot of times you don't. So pretty cool, I guess, that they actually did give us a winner. <laughs> so. I guess that's all you can ask for if you're going to promote something, right? Yeah, and I have to feel like this is a big gimmick, and I'm not trying to take anything away from the Midnights, who were easily my favorite heel tag team uh, during this era, or in 1990, and things like that as well. But with all the other teams, are you telling me the Road Warriors, I mean, the way the Midnights have been used here in 89, are you telling me the Roadies were voted underneath the Midnights, the Skyscrapers were under, I believe the Freebirds were voted under the Midnights. I don't know that a lot of these other teams were, though. So it feels a little gimmicked. So if you spent that 50 cents or dollar or whatever it was for the Midnights, congratulations. They are the uh, King of the Slams. Kings of the Slams, right? Plural. Kings of the Slams. That's right. Midnight Express head to the ring to take on Tony Super and Ron Simmons. Guess what happens? Uh, I'll never guess, man. What, what happened? Well, first we kick off the match. We see Stan, uh, Stan Lane's hand is all taped up. And if you remember, I mentioned on the August 6th Omni show in War Games, Lane had injured that hand, so it's taped up here for this match. But what happens is the Iron Sheik comes to ringside. Do you believe that? And he talks Ron Simmons into leaving his partner for like the fourth or fifth time now. And once again, I feel like we saw this just the other day, a double flapjack on Simmons' partner. This time it's Tony Suber. Stan Lane makes the cover, gets the win in 2 minutes and 13 seconds as this storyline continues with Ron Simmons and the Iron Sheik. I've never seen somebody turn so many times. And I don't mean back and forth because I've seen Lex Luger do that. I just mean I've never seen somebody, I don't want to say turn heel, but just leave their partner this many times in a row. Every episode of TV, it feels like, for the last couple, two, three weeks now. Yeah, that's what it feels like. And this is when I document, this is when I put down in my notes, uh, how stupid are his partners for signing up for these when he's been doing this for weeks now. I, I think if he wasn't going somewhere with Ron Simmons, this would be a good way to put like a name face opponent in there, a partner and d- do it to him before you can do it to him, you know, kind of start a small rivalry there or something like that. But clearly this is for something. And again, this could be just be a production thing where like, I think you mentioned on last show where it feels like pro, and Worldwide are almost the same show, and they film it or record it as if you may watch one but not the other. So we're going to do very similar things on each show. So I'm wondering if that has an impact on this because this is very redundant and looks ridiculous. So I'm just wondering. Yeah, but we've seen the same thing happen on the same show repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. Like this has happened more than once on Pro. This is it feels like it's happened more than once on Worldwide. Like so, yeah. so this is it just keeps happening. It's it and it's not even the last time. It still happens again. Oh, Lord. And the person that they settle with initially, (laughs) all this for that, it's like, oh, my God, come on. And it's not even creative. Ron Simmons did the same, and we already mentioned this, Ron Simmons did the exact same thing to Ranger Ross when he left him for Teddy Long before they split that. 
he had a chance to win the tag titles and he did this. Right. So who gives a shit if he's leaving a, a, a jobber to get beat up by the Midnight's? Like, nobody cares. They have to realize this. Uh, obviously, they don't. But how can you not realize this? You have six people on the booking committee. Nobody's sitting there saying, hey, well, we had this dude do this for the in the title tournament. And the funny thing is, this, this goes on so long to the point where by the time he's finally fully with the Iron Sheik and this, this leaving his partner's thing is over with, it's almost time for Doom to debut. I, I bet you, I, I would love to be in the room when they told Ron Simmons that, hey, man, we're putting you on the hood with Butch Reed and you're going to be Doom. Are you ready? Oh, thank the Lord. <laughs> I'm like, I'll be, I'll be anything you want God. me to be at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Get me away from the sheep, please. <laughs> I've had enough. Oh, Lord. Damn. You ever see those segments backstage where he's looking around because all these uh, crazy random wrestlers from the past are dancing or acting stupid he looks around and he goes damn that's uh gotta be what he's doing here as he's looking around the iron sheik and a cuban assassin in, in his corner <laughs> damn damn <laughs> there it is has to be oh my lord it's uh, bad for yeah i don't know if i feel bad for him you know he tried to keep it real man he kind of had this coming it's uh he, had, he needed to be humbled and then it worked it, it worked out for him look look what he did with the rest of his career so this yeah, this might have been been just what the doctor ordered to get him in line, humble him a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I know we had that conversation. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I'm sure at the moment he hated it, but looking back, I'm sure, like you said, it was a very humbling experience and set him on his way. Oh yeah, I mean, my God, Doom, WCW World Champion, and everything he did after that. So, but we'll move on with this episode. It's the SST in the ring with Paulie Dangerously. He's still their manager for the time being, taking on Mike Justice and Bob, em- and Bob Emery. God, I do that all the time. Bob Emery. Uh, Samu attempts a backdrop, and Bob Emery comes running off the ropes, jumps on top of Samu's back, and stands straight up. Why, you might ask? Well, simple. It's just a choreographed spot. Fatu comes flying off the top rope of the clothesline. Looked cool. You can oh, yeah. ch- catch that spot right now on Twitter. It's on our Twitter account, at Wrestling Grenade. Pretty cool stuff here, but uh, the match is pretty quickly over with. It's a brain buster sa- by Samu, and the Fatu top rope splash on Emery ends it. One minute and 22 seconds. Yeah, I think they definitely trust the, the Bob Emery and Mike Justice. Those guys are oh, solid they, jobbers. These, job. these guys have to be ecstatic. Not just the SST, but the entire roster have to be ecstatic. That they're back with their that they're back with the rusty uh, job guys that they know the enhancement talent that they know the Lee Scotts the Trent Knights the Bob Emerys the Mike Justices that whole group of guys they've got to be uh, thrilled that that they know that they're going to be they're going to be able to go out there and have a good match and they're going to get over and look good and nobody's going to get hurt in the process. Yeah, absolutely, and I think even you can kind of see it here. They give them some stuff. I think Super was getting some offense in on the midnights. Emery was able to do that spot. Like that looked awesome. Even though he got clotheslined off of him, it still looked pretty cool. So they're giving these guys some this week and uh, rightfully so. <laughs> we move on with the show. We see clips from doc versus Mike Rotunda matches one and two for what reason? I don't know because we don't see clips from match number three and it already happened. It aired last week and it just aired the same weekend as this. So I really don't understand the logic of that there, but why, why question logic when it comes to production in the NWA at this point? In the ring, it's good to see Brad Armstrong here in the NWA as he takes on Trent Knight, and boy, that would be a fun match at a house show 
It's an opener. Give him 10 minutes. That'd be a fun one. But Brad Armstrong will be taking on Ric Flair for the world heavyweight title we learned next week on TV. My question is how? He just got here. He's not even in the top 10. Oh, NWA, you make no sense. Terry Funk had to kill how many jobbers on the floor with the pile driver? I had to kill 10 fucking jobbers. And maybe 20. Brad Armstrong comes in. Yeah. Brad Armstrong comes in and gets a title shot, second match in, uh, of course. <laughs> Two title shots next week. We'll talk about those in a, in a little bit. But fast ground stuff by both guys in a Russian leg sleep with the most beautiful float over of all time. Brad Armstrong, nobody does it better. Gets the win in one minute and 55 seconds. Probably the fastest squash match I've ever seen Brad work. He doesn't really have an option here on these syndicated shows. The matches go pretty fast, but Brad's not a two-minute kind of guy. You know, he needs a little more time to really showcase what he can do in there. Yeah, what stinks is they were trying to work a decent match here. Even though it went a minute and 55, the crowd was chanting boring almost immediately on him. And uh, it's just unfortunate because Brad Armstrong is definitely entertaining, and the more time you give him, the better he's going to look. Joe Pettacino knows, and, and here in Cleveland, he's in the crowd, so beware. It's localized promos for Ric Flair and Terry Funk, so we do get a couple of localized promos here this week, on Worldwide anyway, as they're selling the house show, the Funk and Flair matches on the house shows. Yeah, I think it's for a New Haven show, right? New Haven Coliseum? Yeah, I think the localized promo is, yeah, but they're, they're generic promos. They're for all the, the entire house show loop. It's promo time. Up on the stage, I love the setup here in Cleveland. I like the the stage setup, very WWF-like with the stage promos. And then uh, I just like the look of the building. But we get Brian Pillman out here with Sting. So they're not teaming up or anything like that, but they're out here at the same time. Two birds with one stone, I suppose, is uh, flying Brian Sting. We get two promos for the price of one. Brian Pillman is looking for revenge on Norman. Didn't Norman and Teddy Long just say that Brian Pillman has landed and he's done and he's basically been put out of wrestling? Here he is looking for revenge. Jim Ross keeps name-dropping Cleveland to get the fans to pop. I don't know if you caught that here. He had to have said the word Cleveland like six times during this promo. The fans were already, uh, they were pretty good, I thought. But he just wanted to get it louder and louder, I guess, for, for Sting and Pillman here. Sting wants to talk Flair versus Funk and the great Muda and Gary Hart in the television title situation here. Not a whole lot to the promo, but it's a Sting promo, so you get what you get. And just a run-of-the-mill promo here from Sting and Brian Pillman. Yeah, not a lot going on. They're really trying to tie in. Uh, Cleveland's a pretty good football town, so I think they were trying to tie in, you know, Pillman's NFL history, saying he's friends with, like, LT and Boomer Sizing and stuff like that. So, but, yeah, like you said, it was really <laughs> – the one thing that was funny, he says he doesn't know if Norman's one brain cell can handle what he's going to bring. <laughs> and he's going to give him a science lesson on the theory of gravity, what comes up must come down. I thought it was right. – like, I know we talked about it when he was, I think it was on Funk Skrill or where he did his promo, or no, the promo on World Championship. His first promo, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This one was just as good. Uh, It was very solid. It was to the point. He didn't slip up. He knew what he was going to say, and he delivered it with conviction, and uh, he was believing what he was saying. So, again, really good job by him. Rick Steiner on his very first date, at least the very first televised date. Remember, he did play basketball, played uh, Pig, I believe he said it was, and scored 21 against Robin Green, but here it is on their very first televised date. They're headed to the Atlanta Zoo. So we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the, 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 to, I think it's the main event. I don't have a lot of details here on this one. I think it was edited out, actually, this worldwide. But I, I put it yeah. in my notes here because this is where they had mentioned it. 
So we'll get to the date a little later on when we get to the main event. So you guys stay tuned for that. You'll love to hear all the great details and gossip from the zoo. <laughs> yeah, they cut it out of this episode, whoever the source is. It's time for your favorite wildfire. Tommy Rich taking on Scrap Iron Bill Ford. What nicknames, man? Wildfire versus Scrap Iron. It sounds old school. Des Press gets the win here in four minutes and 12 seconds. Nothing to see here. And it's back to Pettacino Nose. He talks the TV title being still held up as rematches are abound everywhere and they continue to end in disqualifications. Go figure. Gary Hart and Sting with localized promos. They both talk the rematch, as you pointed out. It's coming to New Haven here as far as uh, this episode is concerned anyway. World Tag Team Champions, the Freebirds, take on the Steiner Brothers. Of course, it was just last week that the Steiner Brothers scored an uh, <clears throat> quote-unquote upset win over the world champion Freebirds in a non-title match. Jim Ross talked the birds into putting their belts back up on the line in order to get the Steiners back in the ring for this rematch here for a little revenge. Terry Gordy has been barred from ringside, supposedly. He will be suspended indefinitely should he appear, a.k.a. he's gone. The birds with heat on the Steiners early, but it's comeback time, and the Steiners hit stereo power slams twice. And I couldn't believe it. I thought... I thought something had skipped or, or something had been recorded twice. I wasn't really sure the first time around. But no, they shoot both Freebirds off the ropes, deliver stereo power slams, pick them up, shoot them back off, and hit them again. Really cool stuff. Rick Steiner with a belly-to-belly on Jimmy Garvin. But it hits Tommy Young in the process. And on the outside, Michael Hayes goes after Missy Hyatt, and you better stay away from that beautiful young lady. Forgot to mention, the Steiner brothers were accompanied to the ring by Missy Hyatt. I'll never do that again. I'll never make that mistake again. But anyways, Michael <laughs> Hayes on the outside going after Missy, and Rick Steiner makes the save. But he, as he tries to Steiner line Michael Hayes on the floor, Hayes moves, and he Steiner lines the ring post instead. Back in the ring, Scott Steiner with the O'Connor roll on Jimmy Garvin, but Hayes jumps in for the DDT, and the referee calls for the bell and a disqualification, and the Steiner brothers get the win in 5 minutes and 13 seconds. I'm assuming the DQ was simply because the illegal man was caught coming in the ring and hitting such a, a high-impact move as the DDT would be my <laughs> guess here. I, I'm, I'm yeah. making shit up as uh, best I can for them at this point. <laughs> well, the problem is they don't call DQ for the shit that's supposed to be DQs, you know, over the top, using your ropes for a pin, things like that. And then they call DQ randomly for this. And I remember I was like, oh, damn, they're going to beat him clean here a little bit. Next thing you know, Tommy Young gets up and he's grabbing the hand, I think, of Scott and saying, pointing to him while he's sitting down on the on the mat. So I had no idea how it was a uh, a DQ. I think Jim Ross was even confused on commentary. Did somebody, did he grab him when he went for the belly to belly? Did I, I wasn't really paying attention because I didn't think anything of it. You know, I wondered the same thing. I, I was wondering the same thing, but I think it was his body that was thrown into Tommy Young there. So I, the best, my best guess was just the interference was too much. It was just too much of a move as far as interference goes. I mean, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's the best I could come up with here if I'm, if I'm making shit up for the NWA at this point. Uh, so the Steiners beat the world champion Freebirds last week by pinfall. This week they beat him again by disqualification. So they're technically 2-0 and over the Birds. And that doesn't sit well with the Freebirds who leave the Steiners laying but Rick Steiner rolls out of the ring, grabs a chair, and runs the Freebirds off. So the Steiner brothers pick up a win by DQ, but the Freebirds somehow still are World Tag Team Champions. The action continues with the Great Muda taking on Scott Hall. I believe we saw this once before. I think it was at center stage, if I'm not mistaken. 
plancha early on by Muda onto Hall on the outside, but Scott Hall catches him off the top rope with a big punch, and the match continues. Basic shit from Scott Hall again, just all the normal basics. He just doesn't seem to have any real offense. Hall winds up missing a crossbody and lands into the ropes, bouncing off the ropes. Pretty comical for a guy his size. Works for someone like a Coco Beware, but watching Scott Hall try to throw his whole body into the ropes and bounce off of them, a bit much for a guy his size. Great Muda grabs Scott Hall from behind, hooks the waist lock, German suplex. Folds Scott Hall in half, his toes are touching the ground as he's pinned like a jobber. And the Great Muda pins Scott Hall in only one minute and 58 seconds. I'm wondering if that's the end of Scott Hall here. Does he stick around longer? I don't think he's here very much longer, but I was just about to say, I I would imagine the writing is on the wall for Scott Hall here doing a job in under two minutes. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, like you said, that's the writing on the wall. Yeah, the the plunger was awesome. Very crisp, very clean. Paul did his part. And then Muda's Muda. Great stuff. And we close the show with a Gary Hart promo. He has with him the great Muda and Terry Funk who are now known as the JTEX Corporation. Of course, the J standing for Japan Tex, for Texas. And together, they are the JTEX Corporation. Let's listen to what Gary and company have to say. You know, Gary, i got to think there's a lot of people here in Cleveland, Ohio, that still think that Sting is the television champion of the world. Well, to know the mentality of the people that live in this dirty, filthy place that you call Cleveland, you think that Cleveland's beautiful, too. You actually think that you got a football team. You actually think you got a baseball team. But all you really have in Cleveland is a great, big, dirty cesspool setting on a filthy lake. Look who's here. What you people really want to see is what I want to see. I want to see Ricky Flair and the Sting wrestle the great Muda and Terry Funk in a tag team match. Now, if you want it so bad, Flair, and if Sting wants it so bad, it's very simple. The wrestling world also wants it. So why don't we sign it and find out really who is the better competitors? Sting and Flair, I know what it is. It's JTEX Corporation. Funk and the Great Muda, right? Absolutely the... The JTEC Corporation, and I'm sure that these people do not like Nissans, they don't like Toyotas, neither do I. But I realize what is the best product, and this man right here is the best product in the wrestling world today. And together with my cohort, we are going to astonish the world of professional wrestling. You know something? I'd like to say one last thing about Cleveland. In all of America, Cleveland is the stinkingest city of them all. And in wrestling, it's Flair and the Steamer. That's your opinion. Fans, we'll see you next week. Don't, don't miss Man, Gary Hart really hates Cleveland. That's, that's what yeah, I, I think he cut more of a promo on Cleveland than he, than he did Sting and Flair here. <laughs> yeah, he did. Like, the promo was over, and he had to get one last dig in of uh, Cleveland. So um, I feel like something yeah, happened some to him in a locker room somewhere at some point <laughs> earlier in his, in his career. 
I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I like the name JTEX. It sounds cool when Gary Hart says it. Um, it. It just seems important and fitting. But So, yeah, that's really the only thing to take out of that. So Gary Hart debuted as Funk's manager at the Great American Bash, and since that time, Funk's obviously been lightly aligned with Muda because they're, they're both feuding with Sting and Ric Flair. Now they're a full-fledged group, a, a, the JTEX Corporation. So we've come a long way from Hiro Matsuda and company in the Yamazaki Corporation. It's a corporation still, but JTEX sounds much, much better. The joke's on you, Hiro Matsuda. <laughs> right. <laughs> Now, I don't forgot about Hero Matsuda. Why'd you have to remind me? <laughs> well, we got to do these things. We got to keep this stuff fresh in our head. For <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's been that long, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like a whole whole another world. It does. Woo. We move on to the six oh five show NWA World Championship Wrestling for August nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine. Or no, we don't. In the biggest example of WCW being WCW, the company reaches an all-time low. It's the biggest faux pas in company history, and that covers a lot of ground, Steve. Instead of airing the show taped for August 19th, the NWA winds up accidentally airing the episode of World Championship Wrestling from three weeks prior on July 29th. And by the time TBS realized the mistake and found the correct tape, World Championship Wrestling had been off the air for 45 minutes. DeMeltz claims TBS received hundreds of calls regarding the mishap. Missing from the show was the introduction of Dick Slater to the JTEX Corporation. Not a good way to start off the Ric Flair era as Booker. I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, what do you say to that? <laughs> this is a world-class, supposed to be a world-class organization ran by, a, owned by a billionaire a few times over, uh, has the biggest news corporation in the country at this time, or pretty close to it. I don't know. I, I could be off base with that one, but CNN's up there with oh, whatever. Yeah. It's tops, whatever else. Yeah, definitely the tops probably at that time. And this shit happens. I get it. You're not necessarily, they're not the same. They're not responsible for it. But at the same time, you should be able to buy people to make sure this shit doesn't happen. Pay people to get in there to ensure that this thing is runs as smooth as possible. Uh, let the wrestlers and the bookers focus on what they're supposed to focus on and get you a production team, get you a tape inserting team. That's not going to allow any of this to happen. This is inexcusable. This is, utter ridiculous that this could even happen <laughs> has this ever happened before elsewhere like to like a, a territory area or that you know of i'm sure that's happened on the loop you know when they used to bicycle tapes from town to town if it didn't make to a, a town on time it they probably did have to i'm sure i've heard tell of that yes uh three weeks a three-week-old episode and typically it was done on purpose that they didn't get the tape on time remember you know, this wasn't, you know, the satellite area uh, era. This was, you know, if, if you're talking the territory era, they, they bicycled the tape. That means they, they took the tape to Memphis aired, or you aired Memphis live, right? But then you took the tape and you got it to Louisville. You had to take it to, you know, uh, Tupelo or Evansville, Indiana. The tape had to be driven places to air. And that's why it was, you know, some, in some cases, because it took so long to get to other towns, 
other town storylines would be a week behind, which was okay because they were the only ones seeing the storyline. So when the guys came in to do the house shows that week, the house shows they were doing in Memphis were one thing, and they were doing the house show matches they were doing the week before in Memphis that week. So everything still made sense in that city. Unfortunately, yeah, that here... Makes, I was just going to say, and that makes sense. I mean, it's not like you have to travel and, you know, deliver these tapes and things like that. that that's an excuse. That's legit. Like, you know, if there's bad weather, right. if it just takes longer to get there, things like that. But there's no way that's the excuse here. And, hey, I need this. This is the tape. Well, this, this tape's already here. Atlanta. You figure they're recording. They're recording at center stage. They're already there. there. I mean, yeah. So I, the, the tape got misplaced is all I can say. It's odd that they played the one from three weeks prior rather than last week's. It's a little more forgivable, at least. I mean, how the hell do you find three weeks ago versus last week's episode? It's really odd. Has it ever happened? Sure, things like this have happened. It's uh, not very common. But this just seems like a whole cluster fuck, man. Just a, a mess. And then there's, you know, still more issues next week too, in the next episode of World Championship Wrestling. And what if you're Ric Flair? You mean to tell me I'm taking over booking and you idiots can't even put a, the proper tape in? Yeah, it's it's crazy. The whole the whole thing's crazy. So we don't have World Championship Wrestling this week, but we do have some bonus matches, Steve, that I found. There's a little ditty, hard to come by, but I do have myself some episodes of a program that aired in Germany, a NWA WCW program called NWA Catch-Up or WCW Catch-Up. And what that is is just random matches. It's a little behind the time. Let's say uh, this is what? We're in August now of 1989. This probably didn't air in Germany until roughly February of 1990. So they're about six months behind on what's going on. And that was very common back then uh, for Europe to be uh, pretty far behind compared to what was going on in the United States. But what the show did air, it wasn't just uh, matches. It would be random matches from things like the main event or the power hour or world championship wrestling, things like that. But they would sometimes show other cool pieces of footage like dark matches to pay-per-views or house shows that were, where, where there were TV tapings. And this is one of those instances because I found two matches that aired here on an episode of catch up that uh, were part of the, the TV tapings in Baton Rouge. So they're very timely. They took place. They recorded in the beginning of August, not a whole lot going on in the matches, but I still thought it was cool enough to take some notes on them. And that's what I'm going to run over here real quick before we uh, close out this week with the main event. And the two matches, the first of which is the Steiner brothers led to the ring by Missy Hyatt taking on the team of Frogman LeBlanc and Ron Simmons. Oh, yeah, Steve. I said Ron Simmons in a tag team match. <laughs> Missy Hyatt has her own personalized dog-faced gremlin jacket this week. Wonder what Robin Green thinks of that. Rick murders the Frogman with a released German suplex, throws him across the ring. Frogman jumps like a frog there, no doubt about it. LeBlanc tries to attack Scott Steiner on the outside because he got thrown, basically, to the outside, and Scott was having none of it. You could tell. It pissed Scott the fuck off that Frogman actually tried to attack him. And Scott no-sells it and beats the living shit out of him with forearms, like real forearms on the floor. It was, I had to laugh. It was funny. And then tosses a bit like, who the fuck are you, job guy from Baton Rouge? You're not oh, even man. one of our weekly job guys. Who the hell are you to try to shoot on, not, not shoot on him, but try to get one over on Scott Steiner? Wasn't going to happen. 
Oh, it was it was great. Comedy ensued for me. It wasn't meant to be funny, but I had a laugh out of it anyway. And of course, it was that time of the match. The Iron Sheik comes down to ringside, talks Ron Simmons into leaving his partner, and back in the ring, the Steiners taking on Frogman LeBlanc, two on one. Uh, Rick Steiner with an overhead belly to belly. Scott Steiner with the rolling belly to belly gets the win on Frogman. Seven minutes of a beatdown on Frogman LeBlanc. It was glorious. <laughs> Sounds like it. I'm about to go check this out. Scott Steiner getting pissed off like that. Oh, Lord, you're messing with the wrong guy. You're barking up the wrong tree, Frogman. And it's two guys on their way out the door if they're not already gone at this point. It's Scott Hall taking on Chopper Steve Casey in a battle of baby faces. Two baby faces, very basic matches you might imagine with these two guys in the ring. Head locks, wrist locks, arm bars, leg locks, toe holds, grounded head scissors. Yes, all of those things happened here. So you can see how uneventful this was. They tried to do the old reverse the hip toss spot where the guys keep taking turns trying to hip toss each other until they finally get to the ropes and then one guy accidentally hip tosses the other one over the top rope to the floor. They tried that spot. But both guys were so bad at it and so mistimed, they get to the ropes and Scott hip tosses Steve Casey into the ropes. Not over the ropes, into the ropes. And Steve Casey has to kind of fall onto the middle rope and get up like he's mad as if he's been thrown to the floor. So they have to sell it, even though the, the spot didn't actually happen, which I, I, again, comical to say the least. And I just can't believe Scott Hall's been in the business several years now. I mean, you got to go back to the American starship with Dan Spivey. It, they've been in the business eight, six, seven, eight, five years. At least Scott Hall's been in the business. There's no excuse for this shit. Yeah, absolutely not. It's two guys too. They're pretty big. They, I don't know why they're trying to do that spot anyway, but they have to pretend like that's what happened as they get into a shoving match and begin to argue. Absolutely stupid. Instead of just calling an audible and moving on, they have to pretend like something happened that didn't actually happen. Steve Casey takes over, works the leg, and a figure four by Steve Casey. Maybe that's why he, he got the boot. Ric Flair saw this and said, you're out of here. Who the fuck are you to be doing my move? We move into the finish of the match. It's quick pins back and forth. Steve Casey tries a backslide. Scott Hall rolls out. Scott Hall with an inside cradle driver because as he locks in the inside cradle, he drops Steve Casey right on his head with it and rolls it into the inside cradle. And Scott Hall with the win in 8 minutes and 47 seconds. And the announcer, you can hear the German announcer, refer to it as a DDT. And that's why I had to go back and watch the finish because I I don't know German, but I know DDT. And I said, did he just call an inside cradle a DDT? the hell did he see that i didn't see and that's when i had to go back and watch the finish and sure enough <laughs> he hooks him for an inside cradle and just dumps him on his head it was uh, it was very much like a ddt and then rolled him into the cradle and got the win i thought it was funny that he called it a ddt and, and in fact was a ddt whether it was meant to be or not inside cradle driver sounds pretty cool actually you know you drop him with the move right on the head and you're already in a pinning position so sounds effective not not effective enough because both guys are pretty much done with the company. So <laughs> Steve Casey's off to Dallas. Scott Hall's soon to be off to Puerto Rico. One of them will return to prominence. You you guys can guess which one. And it's on to the NWA main event for August 20th, the taping from August 14th in Charleston, West Virginia. We kick things off with the date. That date I was talking to you guys about a little bit ago. I'm sure this was set to air as well on World Championship Wrestling, but... We didn't see World Championship Wrestling. 
It's Rick Steiner with Robin Green, and they're out on a date at the Atlanta Zoo. And this would have aired, but you know what? It's quite all right because we're going to get to see another date next week. How good is that? And as they're at the zoo here, uh, (laughs) Rick Steiner keeps wanting to see Willie the Gorilla. That's what I got out of it anyway. The early part of Woman sticks out here as Robin Green keeps telling Rick what she wants. She wants to go see the elephants. I was waiting for the uh, Joe Penasino joke here as they talked about the elephants, but we didn't get one. I was a little, little sad about that. Then Robin Green wants ice cream, but hers falls on the ground, so she steals Rick's instead. Uh, again, a little more woman coming out here. And I, I wrote my note here, she's a bitch already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it was what it was. I'm not into this. So no, it was, was, it was, like, uh, it was garbage. It definitely was. I was just like, can we get this over with? Let's get to the rain. And this date compared to next week's date, it's they don't even make sense together. No, they don't. I, I don't even they, understand. They, 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 I don't either. It's debut time. It's the first time in a while we've got to say that. It's a debut, this time of the State Patrol making their tag team debut. It's the team of Dwayne Bruce and Dale Vesey, jobber extraordinaires now named Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker and Lieutenant James Earl Wright. And uh, I wonder if this is Dwayne Bruce, you know, this way of WCW to pay Dwayne Bruce back for nearly dying from Sid. It has to be. I would have to think here. One week he's, he's doing jobs, and, and it, they didn't even wait to repackage him. It's like he was just on TV a couple weeks ago doing jobs, and now all of a sudden he's a member of the State, state Patrol. Yeah, it didn't take long to, uh, hey, man, I damn near died out there. What are you giving me? That type of deal. I wonder if that conversation happened. I don't know. This is. It seems like another one of those last, not necessarily last-ditch efforts, just seems like an effort to create a gimmick and force people into it, that, that sort of deal that they've been doing in 89 that they didn't typically do very often. They're more real and authentic in the NWA, and then here's more gimmicks. So, well, Based on where they put them on the card, I think this gimmick worked. It didn't need to be a whole lot, and I thought they worked what they needed to work this gimmick just fine. So in in this instance, I didn't mind it so much. And uh, in their debut here, they're taking on job guys, which which means the state patrol aren't necessarily jobbers. They're 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 that next tier up, and their opponents are Mark Smith, and for this week at least, a babyface Lee Scott. You don't see that very often. It was funny seeing Lee Scott fire up here. Oh yeah, he came in. You know, had some nice looking offense. You know, arm drags and drop kicks and things like that. He looked pretty good to start off here. State Patrol get the win with a backdrop into a sit-out powerbomb by James Earl Wright on Smith, and Wright gets the pin in four minutes. State Patrol, uh, obviously they're going to wind up starting to do jobs here pretty soon, but I thought it was really smart of them in debuting them, giving them a win, so that they're immediately credible rather than jobbing them out in their very first match. At this point, they've set the stage now. These guys are capable of winning matches. So it means more when they start losing to, you know, the higher-up teams like, say, the Steiners and the Midnights and the Roadies or, or teams like that. Yeah, you don't automatically assume that it's going to go in there and take the loss. Uh, like you said, it's very smart to give these guys something to start off with. That way, when you do start to squash them and job them out, that they're not necessarily that you still have that thought in your mind, okay, these guys are... I know when I was watching these random episodes, like, when I seen the State Patrol, I knew they were jobbers, and I knew they were probably going to lose. But it was going to be a somewhat competitive match, and oh yeah, that's before I even seen their debut. So 
whenever you have a gimmick and things like that, it definitely helps when you're in that enhancement position because you know it's just going to be a little bit more competitive than a normal squash. So, Well said, well said. Very true. Promo time with a jacked-up Jimmy Garvin. Man, is he on the juice or what? He talks the Midnight Express. Says the Midnight's best stop listening to Jim Cornette. The Freebirds are going to hurt the Midnight's. Is it me, or aren't the Freebirds feuding with the Steiner Brothers? This is very odd for me, that in the middle of the Steiner Brothers feud, we're, we're talking about the Midnight Express here. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. I, I know Cornette keeps on trying to keep his team relevant whenever he gets that opportunity to talk, which is not very often, and, and that's unfortunate. But So like, if, if you're the tag champs and you hear somebody calling your name, you need to you know like, at least acknowledge it. So it's kind of like a... A side gig, why their main gig is, you know, marinating a little bit. I don't know what the deal is, though. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I get that they're wrestling them here on the show, but I just don't understand. I don't know. I feel like this really makes things confusing when you're in the middle of a Freebirds and Steiner Brothers feud and you put a team the level of the Midnights in here against them. It just really muddies up the water for me. Maybe it's just me. I agree with you because you, you like that continuity. If, if there's a team that's in a rival with somebody, that's the focus. This would be like Demolition being in a feud with the powers of pain, and all of a sudden they're going to start talking about the Brain Busters right in the middle of it. And they're, they're, one week they're talking about the Brain Busters, the next week they're talking about the powers of pain. Like, So what's the deal here? Who's the number one contender? Who's that top team that's challenging your champions? And you just get confused. and you, I mean, you can't really – focus in on one thing you just lose interest in it altogether and the freebirds suck and they're not helping themselves but having them being torn one way to the midnights and one way to the steiners hell they're even dealing with the road warriors a little bit because they got in on that massacre marietta type deal they keep talking about them so they're just like all over the place whereas i prefer you know just give me one straight and that that seems like that one straight feud is the steiner brothers but they're just branching off elsewhere to kill time or this it doesn't make sense and it's just it takes away from that initial feud or the one that you're trying to get to the the main the main goal there right we move on with the show it's the new zealand militia taking on scott hall and ranger ross this is another rematch too we saw this on another episode of tv basics by the baby faces to kick things off go figure until the militia take over and get heat on ranger ross rip morgan and ross wind up colliding for a double down and a hot tag to Big Scott Hall and Jacko victory. And we end, wind up with a four-way melee in the ring as Scott Hall comes off the middle rope of the clothesline on victory and makes the cover, but the referee is with Ranger Ross, and so that allows Rip Morgan to come in with that canteen. There's that canteen again. Clocks Scott Hall with the canteen, victory on top, and the New Zealand Militia get another win in 6 minutes and 24 seconds. The New Zealand Militia getting a push. I'm good. Same here. <laughs> There's just not a lot of teams here in the NWA that you can really enjoy. I mean, the heels are not very good here uh, outside of the skyscrapers and SSD. I, I don't know. Their tag division is kind of trash. I think their tag division is just kind of, it's just all over the place. There's, it's hard to describe what's going on with their tag division right now. They have a lot of teams, but they're not so much over. And they're certainly lacking wrestling ability. Where's that heel wrestling team that can wrestle like Arn and Tully, or like the Midnights when they were the heels. We don't have one of those right now. We have the wild, brawling team like the SST who are capable of wrestling, but we, we know what their gimmick is here right now. Skyscrapers are certainly 
uh, just ground and pound, beat beat the hell out of you and, and go home. The Freebirds have no idea how to wrestle. And then the New Zealand militia here. So, yeah, we're we're in trouble if we're looking for a heel team to, you know, get into the ring and actually have a wrestling match right now. I think that's what's uh, lacking on the heel side of things for the tag team division anyway. And I don't, it doesn't improve until the beginning, maybe the very tail end of this year, early next year, to be honest with you, when the midnights turn and, and, and things like that. You just don't, you never have it. When they heal, the face teams are your wrestling teams. Like, you know, you got the midnights, the Steiners, those guys can go all day. The heels on the other side, they can't do anything. Some of them are gimmicks. Some of them are, you know, just so massive that they really don't wrestle. This leaves for awkward matchups. I mean, they're good and they're entertaining, but. I don't know. On paper, it looks nice name-wise, but this meshing of styles, it's not there. Their tag division is, like, so weird. We get a promo from Jim Cornette prior to the main event. The Midnight Express are ready for a chance to become three-time world tag team champions. And Cornette says in order for the Birds to beat the Midnights, they're going to have to carry one of them out of the ring. Basically a precursor setting up what's what's to happen here, or at least uh, what they work over here. In the matchup as we get World Tag Team Champion Freebirds taking on the Midnight Express in the main event of the main event. Stan Lane's hand visibly taped up as the camera covers it, wrapped up from uh, wrist all the way up to his fingertips. Uh, of course, he injured that hand in the part of the War Games. Not really sure what happened to it, but it was taped up pretty good here. Yeah, I mean, you really couldn't even see. You could barely see his fingertips on his hand. I mean, it was wrapped pretty thick. He heard it. I wonder what he did. I wonder how it happened in the cage. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, obviously, we never got to see the match. I mean, it could have been something getting his hand caught in the cage, or it could have just been, in, you know, in the in the heat of the fight, you know, with that many guys in the ring, the wrong place at the wrong time. But the Midnights dominate the match here. Much of the first seven minutes go to the baby faces until the heel Freebirds wind up getting the heat on Bobby Eaton. Bobby Eaton makes a comeback with a swinging neckbreaker on Jimmy Garvin and gets the hot tag to Stan Lane. Lane is all over Jimmy Garvin, but Michael Hayes with a cheap shot on Stan Lane's bad hand. And the Freebirds begin to work over the bad hand of Stan Lane. Referee Tommy Young misses a hot tag to Bobby Eaton. And Stan Lane clotheslines Garvin, but hurts that bad hand in the process. And Garvin with the cradle. And the Freebirds get the win in 13 minutes, 30 seconds. Uh, A unique, uh, not necessarily unique, but a, a different finish than we're usually accustomed to. Lane never managed to get that tag. The referee misses the hot tag, and therefore it never really happens. And Lane winds up hurting his hand, re-injuring his arm, and the, the Freebirds get the win. One, two, three. Pretty clean. I mean, it, it was a clean finish uh, outside of, you know, Young missing the tag, but that's normal. That's just a typical tag match from back then. But, yeah, it came a little bit came out of nowhere. I mean, I know the hand hurt, but you just going, you can't kick out at that point. Is it the pain that bad in your hand that you can't kick out? So it was a little weak, but at the same time, it told a great story, and I was actually entertained with this match. It wasn't it wasn't bad, even though it went 13 minutes and you're thinking, oh, God, it's the birds in a 13-minute match, lots of stalling, things like that. It never felt that way. Uh, I felt like it was solid enough. didn't drag or anything like that, but I guess that's just the Midnights, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's what I've, I've written before in these Midnights and Birds matches is that they're not necessarily really good matches, but the fact that the Midnights can carry them to watchable matches is just uh, amazing in itself. that sums it up perfect we move on to the next week it's nwa power hour for the week of august 25th 1989 taped from cleveland on august 15th jim Cornette and jim ross the hosts 
And it's Jim Cornette digging into Cleveland this week every chance he gets. Of course, he's a babyface, so he can't come right out and shit on the city. Instead, he says a bunch of things he won't say about the city. He won't say how terrible the Indians are. He won't say how messed up the lake is. So Jim Cornette shitting all over Cleveland throughout the show, but doing it in a babyface way. <laughs> I thought it was creative. Flying Brian Pillman in the ring, taking on Jerry Price. So yes, Steve, Jerry Price lives after that SST backdrop. Thankfully, my God, this is the first time we've seen him. So I don't know. If, I don't know if he got cold feet and said, yeah, I don't want to come back. And then he finally, what about Pillman? We'll give you Pillman. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> I wonder if he had to be convinced to come back uh, after the SST damn near killed him. Yeah. Glad to see him back. Price winds up seated on the top rope during the match, and Brian Pillman with a dropkick sends Price off the top rope all the way to the floor outside in a very nasty, wicked baseball slide. Every bit of it caught Jerry Price, sent him flying into the railing, very awesome looking. And then back inside, Brian Pillman with the springboard clothesline. Air Pillman gets the win, 2 minutes and 49 seconds. Awesome stuff. Pillman's looking great here. I'm not a huge Brian Pillman fan, but, man, he was uh... – He's eye-catching, and uh, he's definitely different. It's crazy to say that when you got somebody like the like Muda on the roster, but Pillman, just the entire look and everything is different, and he just he's just awesome, man. I'm really intrigued with him. Yeah, I loved Brian Pillman's time in WCW from 89, 90, 91, 92 as a babyface. When he turned heel during the Bill Watts era, I was not a fan at all initially. Going back, I love it, but... When I was a fan back then, I wasn't a big fan of the heel turn. Now because he went heel, because I love plenty of heels, it was because his style had to completely change as a heel. And I didn't like that. I liked the Brian Pillman I saw as a babyface. I didn't want to see a ground, you know, ground grappling Brian Pillman. And that's pretty much what we got. But going back, it's, you know, it's uh, some really good stuff. But uh, it's just it was just an odd change to see him change his entire fundamentals. And a lot of people forget that before he wound up with Steve Austin and they eventually became the Hollywood Blondes, his initial team was with Barry Windham out of the gate when they both had turned heel right around the same time in WCW. They started teaming, and that was a really unique team that I thought really gelled well together too. But somehow that just morphed into Steve Austin over the weeks, and we wound up eventually they were the Hollywood Blondes. That wasn't immediate, but they eventually became the Hollywood Blondes. And then I loved them again. I loved that team together. They worked well. I thought I thought Pillman was able to shine a little more as a Hollywood blonde again. So I, I've all, I think I've always uh, been a fan of Brian Pillman up until the demise of the Hollywood Blondes. I don't I don't know that he ever really got back to that level again. But but a lot of injuries added up there too. Yeah, it's unfortunate, man. Injuries really derailed him. And the sad part is, like you said, when he turned heel, it, he completely changed his style, and I think uh, he never really returned to that. We never got that. We never got this Pillman again after the turn. He showed it here and there, some moves, but nothing that made Brian Pillman who Brian Pillman was uh, initially. We all know the loose cannon gimmick, and we'll be talking about that on the Monday Warfare show in, in full on when, as we go along there. But here, this Pillman is the best Pillman, and it, it's crazy. After he turns heel, you never get it back. You never see this again. So just a tremendous talent, really. He really is. It's time for WNN with ah, ah, Gordon Soley. Hide the booze. And Gordon announces that there's a man, a mysterious man by the name of the Z-Man, who is signed with the NWA. Who could that be? We'll find out soon. I believe the Z-Man will debut at the Clash of the Champions. And speaking of the Clash of the Champions, Gordon talks about the Clash of the Champions 8 
Fall Brawl coming up on September 12th. The main event will be Funk and Muda taking on Flair and The Sting. Uh, We'll also see World Tag Team Champion the Freebirds once again defending the titles against the Steiner Brothers on that show. Rumors abound, says Gordon Sully, that Mike Tyson is in negotiations with Teddy Long to come to the NWA. Please. (laughs) Name dropping, that's all that is. Yeah, it's uh, sad, really, to be honest with you. We get our first WWF mention in a few weeks. It's, uh, once again, discussion of Jake the Snake Roberts and his neck injury. Jake is still out in the WWF, and his return is still undetermined. Of course, we know Jake will be back in time for the Survivor Series. I never really noticed when I was living through 1989 that Jake was out for such a long period of time with that neck injury. But he certainly is. Yeah, I never really recognized that. I watched 89 a few times, and I never picked up on the fact that he was gone. That's not to discredit him. It's just they had that much talent to kind of hide it. You know, he <laughs> just feel like they just plugged in somebody else and it was off to the races. Yeah, that's definitely crazy. How long has it been? Mm, well, you know, he was injured prior to leaving, and they did the neck injury sometime after uh, WrestleMania. So it's been, I, I think he winds up missing a few months altogether. May or June to October at least. So, yeah, he's out for a while. It's a new NWA top 10 making the list this week. Number 10, Ron Simmons. Damn, how the hell do you do that? The Iron Sheik has a little pull, gets Ron Simmons into the top 10. And in it, number nine, another new name, Flying Brian, has made the top 10. And uh, names missing from the top 10 here. Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, who seems to be all but gone off of TV at this point, as well as Captain Mike Rotunda who shot up to number six, and just as quickly, he's not even on the top ten anymore. Still in the middle of a feud with Dr. Death. Dr. Death's still at number five. Rotunda no longer to be found anywhere in the top ten, even though he's the one that won the best of three series. Makes no sense. <laughs> Absolutely not. I stopped paying attention to the top ten. I, I jot it down every, or every show that I hear it, just, just so I can know who's on it. But it means nothing. Funk initially wanted to be on the top 10 just so he can get a title shot. And then after that, it kind of seems like they completely forgot about it. They'll throw up, oh, this is a this is a top 10 match type deal sometimes. But for the most part, they don't care about it. It's just filler. So why should I care about it? Well, I mean, yeah, it's filler. There's no doubt about it. I just keep up with it because it's fun. Yeah, me too. It's always interesting to see where people are at. Wildfire Tommy Rich taking on the Cuban Assassin. And boy, that looks like shit on paper, and it was shit on my TV screen, too. Arm bars and headlocks galore from the wildfire. Cuban Assassin doesn't even really go on the offense, just token stuff here and there throughout the match. Boring chants begin to pick up, and I couldn't believe it took the fans that long to begin them. Uh, I was bored two minutes into this one. Cuban comes off the top rope, but misses a flying thing. Not really sure what the hell he was going for there. And Tommy Rich with a schoolboy gets the win in 10 minutes. How the fuck does this prepare you for Lex Luger? It takes you 10 minutes to beat the Cuban assassin, and you have to do it with a schoolboy. You can't even beat him with your shitty-ass Thez press. Yeah, I mean, the crowd, like the boring chants, even, they got louder and louder as the match went on. Every time Tommy Rich went back to, like, an armbar or a leg lock, the crowd got even more restless, like, every single time. This was complete shit. Uh, my my summed up note here at the end was why I even put this on TV? 
it, it accomplished nothing. Like this dude's supposed to be running the the circuit with Luger for the rest of the year, and you're putting him on TV, exposing him like this. There's absolutely no reason to, that anyone should even think for a second that Lex Luger is in jeopardy of losing his title, and that's not what you want when you have a challenger chasing you. Yeah, and, and everyone I, everyone involved should know better. Tommy has been around the block so long; he should absolutely know better. Everyone on that booking committee besides Jim Hurd should know better. It's confusing as to why some of these things are happening. And I'm going to go back to it. I don't want to go too long on Tommy Rich, but I'm going to go back to Paul Lee. When he, I think he was doing a commentary on one of the matches a few weeks ago with Tommy Rich, and he said Tommy Rich is going to have to do a whole lot more if he thinks he's going to beat Lex Luger. True words have never been spoken. I think it was, Gary, Hart, I think it was Gary Hart said that on a world yeah, championship. Gary Hart. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's who it was. And True words haven't been spoken, and they ring true here. He's shown absolutely nothing since he's came back that even warrants a U.S. title feud. Or Well, you know, and I'm not saying that Tommy's going to light the world on fire or wildfire with anyone, but they're doing him no favors with his opponents either. I mean, not only just job guys, but Bill Irwin, the Cuban assassin. I mean, these are the matches you're going to get uh, with those guys. So Yeah, they, they're doing him no favors either, like you said. Uh, I don't even think Lee Scott's going to help Tommy Rich. No, they've had a match. It was a four-minute armbar and a Fez press, I remember, last week. So yep. Lee, Lee Scott terrible. did not help Tommy Rich in any way, shape, or form. Easily the most uneventful Lee Scott match all year long. Absolutely. That's going to disqualify him this month for Jobber of the Month. <laughs> it's time for Terry Funk's Grill, and for the fifth time now in the last yeah, six weeks... It's Norman the Lunatic, or Maniac, or whatever the hell you want to call him, and Teddy Long. They're here on Funk's Grill. And, Steve, I know you hate these epi- these shows, and I know they're hokey, and you don't pay attention to them, and you don't take any of it seriously. But for just one minute, play along with me. Pretend like this is a real segment that you're supposed to take seriously, okay? Last week on Funk's Grill, Terry Funk said that they're going to have Brian Pillman out here next week, and they're going to bum- ambush him and cut his hair, shave it like a road warrior. So what happens this week? It's Norman, Teddy Long, and Terry Funk all out here on Funk's Grill, and they invite Brian Pillman to come out, and he does. And that's not the kicker here, Steve. Brian Pillman stands directly next to Norman, the man who tried to take him out, take his career away from him. And Brian Pillman stands there calmly next to Norman without any anger in his body, and he continues to cut a promo on Terry Funk, not allowing his head to be shaved, He heard what they said last week, yet he's still out here anyway. And finally, all of this culminates with Norman getting up behind Brian Pillman and, to quote Terry Funk, hugging Brian Pillman. And it was a really weak hug, too. Norman tries to grab, wrap his arms around Brian Pillman. He wraps him around the shoulders of Pillman. But Pillman has to pretend like he's stuck anyway as Teddy Long slaps flying Brian. And then Terry Funk even lays in a left hand for some unknown reason. And they leave Brian Pillman on the floor to end the segment. My problems are all over the place here. Brian Pillman was warned in advance, and he still showed up, which is fine. That's what baby faces do. Brian Pillman was attacked. That's fine. That's what baby faces do. But my issues here were one, how can you get that close to a guy who tried to end your career? You just went out on TV last week and challenged him to a rematch for revenge, and you come out here on Funk's Grill. And you stand right next to him as if he's just some other guy waiting in line with you to go buy some tickets or or something like that. That's my first issue. My other issue, they promised to cut his hair and they had him dead to rights. 
knocked out on the ground, and they just walk away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It just sums up Funk's girl. Even when they try to do something with it and cut an angle, it makes no sense. That was my first thought. Pillman just comes out here by himself, and he's standing right next to Norman, like you said, who tried to end his career. And they, he already knows their intentions. He wants They want to cut his hair uh, because they think he would look like a good road warrior or whatever that means. I know Pillman says he has too much respect for the road warriors and for those people who hate cheap imitations, things like that. Uh, he says he felt like he went from the penthouse to the outhouse by coming on Funk's grill. Uh, so that could be why Funk slapped him around a little bit. But yeah, this made no sense. You made Pillman look like a complete idiot by coming out here and doing this. At least, you know, he, he had that interview with Sting on Worldwide, or whichever one it was. So they're kind of buddies. They talk about how Pillman and Sting and Flair name drops Pillman all the time. So he's friends with Sting. We clearly know that. Why wouldn't he come out here with Sting as his backup, knowing that Terry Funk doesn't like Sting? He knows, Norman, they're trying to do something. So why make him look like a complete idiot when you can just have Sting come out with him and back him up a little bit? That way nothing crazy happens. He can come out there and say his piece. And then if you need to, all four of you can brawl a little bit and you move on. Yeah, and another issue I have with these segments are they seem to be taped in front of no fans. So there's no crowd reaction whatsoever, no noise at all, not even canned crowd noise. And it makes it feel even more fake. I don't, I don't know, man. It's, it's pretty bad stuff. It is. It's garbage. Man. It's on to the main event of the Power Hour, United States Heavyweight Champion, Total Package Lex Luger, taking on Brad Armstrong, who's not even in the top ten. And this isn't even Brad's biggest match of the weekend. And he's getting a United States Heavyweight title match here against Lex Luger. Jim Ross says there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. You want to guess which side Lex Luger falls on, Steve? Uh, arrogance. Well, that was a rhetorical question. Of course, arrogance. <laughs> Where do you think Rick Martell got the idea from? Lex Luger chants begin at the start of the match, and I put down, dude is just over. People love the fact that Lex Luger is a cocky-ass heel, and you can tell he really is just a cocky-ass heel. And I think that's what gets a lot of these uh, heels over. When you really buy into the fact that, wow, this guy's really an asshole. That's kind of funny. I'm going to applaud that. And that's kind of the situation here with Lex Luger and the fans because Brad Armstrong's uh, not, not getting a, a lot of fanfare compared to Luger. Absolutely not. I think the biggest thing with Luger, like you said, he, and people believe it, I think a lot of people can sense. Uh, I know it's hindsight and you can always do that, but I would have a hard time not thinking this dude. This dude looks like a million bucks. He's a Greek god-looking guy, and there's no way he doesn't have this attitude to go with it. It, it just seems natural that this is how he really is. And uh, that comes across. And like you said, when the people are like that, they just like it. People just enjoy it. And that's how it gets over. So yeah, he's, he's at the top of his game in 1989. This is by far his best year of his career. No doubt about it. Match gets going. Brett Armstrong with some basics on the mat, keeps things moving. Even in the uh, arm bar, he had locked on. He was, uh, they were moving around the ring. Lots of action, even in the uh, rest holds, so to speak. Lex Luger did a great job. I thought in this match of acting frustrated, he even does a little stalling on the floor, but it's not Freebird stalling. It's actually kind of enjoyable. And uh, he does a better job of selling. And I thought he did a good job here for Brad Armstrong, making him look credible in Brad's first real match in the company. Lex Luger takes over, though. Brad winds up doing some good bumping for Luger off some clotheslines and things like that. Armstrong comes back with a reverse body block, but is supposed to land into a Lex Luger power slam, but it gets botched. 
Uh, Luger realizing that it was botched, he picks Armstrong up, shoots him off the ropes, delivers a second power slam, and goes for the cover. Brad Armstrong actually gets his foot on the ropes, but Luger pulls it off. And Lex Luger gets the win in 13 minutes, 51 seconds. Match went nearly 14 minutes. We get a finish. Brad Armstrong even saves face a little bit by getting his foot on the ropes. Lex pulling it off there. And after watching this, I had to question, why the hell isn't Brad Armstrong getting the push to wrestle Lex Luger on the house shows instead of Tommy Rich? I'm thinking Flying Brian, even Brad Armstrong would make a better nightly opponent for Lex Luger than Tommy Rich here. Yeah, I agree. These smaller guys that can fly around and do great selling and things like that definitely compliment Lex Luger way more than somebody like a Tommy Rich would. And as we close the show this week, the wrestlers of the week are the Steiner brothers. And before we close, Jim Cornette says he's finally found the person who picks the wrestlers of the week. And they're going to be here next week on the Power Hour. Can't wait to see what happens with that. <laughs> Let's see. And we'll move on with NWA Worldwide for August 26th. Still taped in Cleveland August 15th. It feels like they really utilize that Cleveland taping. There's a lot of stuff coming out of this show. And this is no different here. It's a hell of a weekend for the skyscrapers, or at least Sid Vicious anyway. And it begins here with the skyscrapers taking on the ding-dongs. Dan Spivey attacks, and a razor's edge lays out one of the dings. Let's call him Little Ding. Meanwhile, Sid joins in, wipes out Big Dong. And Dan Spivey with a powerbomb on one of the ding-dongs and gets the win in only 42 seconds. Dan Spivey. Hey, Blake's little howdy duty on your coconut. Oh! <laughs> and Sid steps in, wipes the other ding-dong out with a nasty-looking clothesline. Just a nasty-looking clothesline. Oh, and then Lord. to cement this thing is over, to put the exclamation point, the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, they remove the masks of the ding-dongs. The ding-dongs are no more. And for some hysterical, comical purposes, Norman winds up taking the ding-dong masks, putting one on his face. <laughs> I think it's safe to say the ding-dongs are gone. And the Ric Flair era begins with a bang. Message received. This kind of stuff will not be going on moving forward. So is this the, yeah, this is definitely Flair booking. This is crazy. That clothesline by Sid, is oh my god yeah it's like it's like it's like the ding dong fucked his mom or something it was like what what did he do to you yeah i I don't even know what the dude was looking was even looking for it he comes in and just he winds it up and just literally kills this guy uh took liberties yeah i don't know if you saw it when norman was trying to put the mask on dude it took him like six tries just to fit it on his big i thought that was more norman doing the comedy (laughs) bit with it yeah. Oh my God. Like he couldn't though. fit it on his uh, head. Yeah he, yeah. he took him. Yeah. Half a dozen tries to get it over his head. I thought, I thought it was funny I, though. Norman walking around with the uh, ding dong mask, just a fitting way to, to end the entire gimmick of the ding dongs. The uh, ding dong experiment is over. Absolutely. And it's on to a wildfire. Tommy rich promo. He beat world champion Harley race, but that was back in 1981. Tommy rich held the world title for a, about a week. Uh, he says that Lex Luger refers to Southern fans as the cornbread people. Well, the cornbread people are Tommy's people. And he knows he's heard people out there chanting for Lex Luger, but he's also heard people out there chanting for wildfire. What are they chanting? Whip Luger, whip Luger. Yeah, I don't know where he heard that. Maybe on a crack binge. 
I've heard anything during a Tommy Rich match. It's nothing. It's not Whip Luger. It's boring. Oh, I had to mark out for this when I saw this one coming. It's Terry Funk with Gary Hart in his corner taking on Lee Scott. And I started having visions of Lee Scott taking the pile drivers, wondering just how he was going to do it. Was he going to take it like Rob Van Dam? Was he going to bounce four feet in the air? We'll get to that in a minute. Match starts off with Lee Scott grabbing Terry Funk's cowboy hat and pulling a Mel Phillips, wearing the cowboy hat in the ring, which only pisses the Funker off. Terry Funk grabs Lee Scott and throws him to the floor, but Lee lands on his feet. And he's right back in the ring and delivers a drop kick to Terry Funk, and it would have been a great spot had Terry Funk sold it. But Terry had other ideas and clotheslines Lee Scott out of his boots instead. And then it's immediately to the pile driver. And how does Lee Scott take it? Does he bounce in the air? No. What does he do? He manages to crumple the exact opposite of bouncing in the air. His toes land on the mat at the same time as his head. And it looks like he damn near breaks his neck as Terry Funk gets the win with the pile driver in a mere 34 seconds. <laughs> yeah, he destroys him. Man, there, there's a lot going on in this show as far as people getting their asses kicked. Ooh, Lord. Going from the ding-dongs getting killed to Lee Scott taking that pile driver. What a, that's a hell of a way to start a show, for sure. Yeah, and I, I love Jim Ross's comment here at the end of the match in reference to Lee Scott. He says, if he survives, he's got a great future in the sport. I thought that summed up Lee Scott very, very well. Yeah, I agree. And I think Jim Ross does an excellent job throughout the year, like these jobbers. It, it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you hear those comments of, oh, somebody notify his next of kin, or he's going to have a great career, or he has a future in the sport if he survives, that really, really impacts and emphasizes what exactly these guys are doing to him. Like, they're damn near getting killed. And uh, it, it's not necessarily the jobber, it's team doing it or the person doing it and that i think it really does a great job of getting those guys over even more than the moves already are it's sting to the ring it's sting to the ring taking on the bounty hunter al green in a mask this week so he's the bounty hunter stinger splash ends this one 51 seconds doesn't even bother for the scorpion stinger splash gets the one two three and it's on to pedicino nose he talks the dr death micro tunda feud and the flare funk feud it's all setting up matches coming up as part of the Clash of the Champions before we go to a promo involving Terry Funk and Gary Hart. Gary Hart says Ric Flair is running scared and Terry Funk is going to take the gold. He also mentions Sting's time as TV champion is over. The Great Muda will be the TV champion once uh, that thing's over and settled with. Terry Funk sings a hymn. The Lord only helps those who help themselves, says the Funker. JTEX, baby. That's all I got out of this one. <laughs> yeah there wasn't a lot to this one it's steiner brothers time and this is an odd one they're taking on the state patrol and the steiner brothers are accompanied to the ring this week by missy hyatt and robin green but it's not the robin green you guys have come to know and love or at least know anyway no it's not nerdy robin green in fact it's the who we would eventually know is woman she's out there with her hair done up and makeup on and a lovely dress and i just wrote what the fuck is this we haven't seen this develop yet. We haven't seen this date where Robin Green transforms into what we will know soon as woman. They're selling the look for the date tonight earlier on the show. So we haven't seen the vignette yet, and we know we haven't because they're still selling it as airing tonight earlier on this same show. Worse yet, this was taped on August 15th. So the fans in attendance here in Cleveland... Don't even know what the fuck is going on or who probably who the fuck this is. 
just mind-numbing the fact the stuff that they did oh my god i never even thought of that last aspect that you mentioned like this was taped what a week almost two weeks before it airs on tv right uh the date so like you said they have no idea who this woman is because it's not like today where you can have you know video walls and you know things like that to tell you what's going on or show you what's going on these are just people coming out and they get it they get announced and if somebody says robin green i mean she hasn't been really referred to that a whole lot so you don't put two and two together but i doubt they were even announced that way uh they probably just the steiner brothers accompanied by missy hyatt yeah, I didn't pay attention, but let's just say the announcer is Robin Green, and I think her name's been mentioned enough that if you're really a diehard wrestling fan, you probably have an idea of that name by now. But if I'm sitting there in the crowd and I hear that, there's no way I'm buying this girl's the same girl because it's it's a polar opposite. It wouldn't even make sense without seeing the the video, the vignette. It just doesn't. It wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, and it even doesn't here as a fan. If I'm just popping on syndicated TV. Before I watch World Championship Wrestling, and this is Robin Green, I'm wondering what the fuck happens on this date. How do you explain this? And it's never really explained. It's they just go in a different direction, and that's just the way it is. But yeah, it's crazy yeah. stuff. And if you thought Jim Ross was bad before with Missy Hyatt, oh my, oh my God, with Missy and Robin Green both out here, Missy has to take a back burner to Robin here with the way Jim Ross fawns all over. Her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. My notes was uh, Ross popped the boner here for a woman, and, and she looks gorgeous. She definitely does. She's, I mean, she's a beautiful woman here, and she's very attractive in the outfit. Oh my god! As a man, you probably enjoy this. Uh, maybe some ladies too. Hell, I don't know. Whoever, whatever your preference is, she's a very attractive woman. She looks great. But I think as a commentator, you you don't. That's not your job to put over her beauty. I mean, to say she's a beautiful woman and get on with it. This dude is going full on. My God, I want to have a date with this woman. I wish I was smashing her or something like that. Like <laughs> that's how it comes across. Yeah, it does not come across as she's a, like kind of like gorilla with Elizabeth. It's more Vince with Elizabeth, but ten times. No, it's more like Vince with Sean. It's more like Vince with Sean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Robin Green! Ah. Or Ahmed after Survivor Series. Yeah, Ahmed. Comes up. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's disturbing. Uh, Jim Ross was thirsty, man. <laughs> Frankensteiner on Buddy Lee Parker just seconds into the match, and then Rick Steiner tags in and just mauls poor Buddy Lee over with a Steiner line. So if he thought getting a gimmick was going to make it any easier. He was wrong. He's in here with the Steiners now. James Earl Wright tags in with even less success as he eats a power slam off the middle rope by Rick Steiner. And Jim Ross has to mention at this point, I wrote in my notes out of nowhere. He just writes, he just randomly says, uh, I just have to note that these guys are former members of, of the state patrol. So he had to put over that they're no longer actively members of the state patrol, trying to make sure they didn't get any issues, you know, from actual state patrolmen. Uh, just uh, silly stuff like that that always cracked me up, like Canada throwing a fit over the Mountie gimmick to the point where, I don't know if you ever knew this or not, but once they protested and, and had a big fit that the Mountie was portrayed as an evil character, every time they went and worked in Canada, he wasn't allowed to be the Mountie. He was just Jacques Rougeau. He worked. He went up there and worked as Jacques Rougeau. He wasn't allowed to do the Mountie <laughs> gimmick in Canada. And did they do like a disclaimer on the TV when he was on there? 
Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so I, I did remember reading that in the, the Observer, which is it's just crazy. There's a, there's a there's quite a few of those instances. Um, there's another one I, th- I can't remember who it was in '95 where they did something and it got a lot of heat, and uh, I, I never even never would even thought of it. I can't remember what it is right now, but yeah, it's crazy to think that uh, <laughs> you had to do a basically a disclaimer. These guys are not state patrolmen right now. Don't hate your state patrolman. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of funny. And it's really irrelevant whether they're state patrolmen, professional wrestlers, or they're cleaning up Willie the Gorilla's shit at the Atlanta Zoo because Scott Steiner with the rolling belly to belly on James Earl Wright and the Steiners get the win in just three minutes and four seconds. So, again, it was a good idea that they established the state patrol last week because they're, they're doing jobs here in three minutes this week to the Steiner brothers. It's time for Pettacino knows he wants to talk Rick Steiner and Robin Green. He goes to the concession stands, he says, and here's the fans talking. And then Pettacino makes fun of himself. He says, yes, I go to the concession stands quite often. Did you hear that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, I picked up on that. He also talks the Tommy Rich Lex Luger match and the Rick Steiner's Freebirds matches coming to the Clash of the Champions. He continues to hype all the matches for the Clash, so at least they're doing something for the Clash of the Champions. Tommy Rich doesn't have the physique of Lex Luger, nor does Joe Pettacino, but Joe says that Tommy Rich may not have the physique, but he does have the heart to become the next U.S. heavyweight champion. And we'll have to see about that. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think what Clash 6 had no pub, and now every single one of them since then like had at least a month of publicity to get us there. So refreshing. It still is, compared to how terrible Clash 6 was pushed. Yeah, it really so, throws uh, me for a loop watching them build up an entire card for a uh, a big show a month in advance. It throws me off, to be honest with you. Even all the way here in August, I'm like, holy shit! Like, I don't even know what to do with myself. Like, you're announcing a card <laughs> a month in advance, right? I know it's like the beginning of August, and I'm like, oh damn, they're already talking about Clash Seven. The bash just ended. You, oh man, George Scott's rolling over, and he wasn't even dead yet. <laughs> he's rolling over in his bed having nightmares how terribly he booked the NWA <laughs> <laughs> so the Midnight Express were the tag team king of the slams and now it's time for the A&W cream soda king of the slam for the singles division and the winner who else world heavyweight champion Ric Flair and that's our payoff this may have been Ric Flair's first move as booker to book himself into the king of the slams winner what do you think <laughs> it could be but I Think Ric Flair had bigger fish to fry. Speaking of Flair, we go back to the ring. It's NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair defending the title on TV against Brad Armstrong. So, in the matter of two days, Brad Armstrong has challenged for the United States title and the World Heavyweight title, and he hasn't even cracked the top 10 yet. Sounds like he has a, a prominent wrestling family that's giving him some connections here. No. <laughs> Sounds to I me think, like he's got something on somebody somewhere. Uh, I'm curious. <laughs> how, do you know how this came to, came about? Like, what would you speculate as? Uh, I think as, it was just throwaway. It's TV. They knew they they had. I don't. I think the uh, the bottom line is they're not going to push Armstrong to any real level. He's a really solid hand. He's going to certainly make you look good. And so, why not? utilize them in this do i think that they initially planned for both matches to occur on the same weekend probably not but at the same time I, I i don't think there was any kind of major story behind this i mean he's doing jobs 
So I think it's just right. we'll give Tommy Rich the Cuban assassin, and we'll give ourselves Brad Armstrong. I think that's more of more along the lines of what it was. Is he is he around? Like is he in for a while here, or did they just have him for a couple weeks and he was off to somewhere else? So they wanted to take advantage because they knew they was going to have two really good matches. I feel like there's really nowhere else for Brad to go at this point. All the territories are pretty much dead. I know he doesn't go to Portland. I doubt it. I don't remember him stopping through Memphis. Alabama's on life support at this point. So to answer your question without looking ahead, I really don't know. I know Brad's there pretty prominently in the latter half, the second half of 1990. I really don't remember him doing a whole lot between now and the first half of 1990. He very well may have been there the entire time, and I'm just... I'm having a brain fart. They didn't really use him a whole lot. I know he was off and on teaming with Tim Horner, reforming the Lightning Express on the undercard. I know, you know, Jim Hurd, Tony Schiavone tells it, Jim Hurd wanted a a goddamn candy man. And so we got a a candy man, Brad Armstrong, eventually, there in the the latter half of, of 1990. What Brad was doing before that, it's hard to say. I can't imagine the NWA not wanting a talent like Brad Armstrong. Especially with yeah, Ric Flair as Booker, uh, I'm sure Rick Rick really respected Brad. You know, based not just because of his family, but just because of his talent. You want a guy like this on your show, especially when you're a wrestling oriented champion, a wrestling oriented Booker, and a wrestling oriented, for the most part, a wrestling oriented promotion. Yeah, without looking, I have no idea if Brad was here for the long run or what was going on with Brad Armstrong during this period. It's a good question. Yeah, I will say, though, no matter what the circumstances, I'm happy for these couple matches. I mean, he's I know a lot of people say and that he's very underrated and kind of forgotten. And oh, that's yeah. true. I mean, a lot of the time, like the telling of his career is just used as a an upper tier enhancement. Oh, I can't for the tell most you part. how much that pissed me off. And uh, it's unfortunate. But, man, you can, you can find some gems back here with Brad Armstrong. Just a tremendous, tremendous entering guy. He's going to make anybody look like a million bucks. and. I've said it numerous times. If you can just pick, you know, grab a few things and not have to worry about it, the better off you're going to be. The less things you have to worry about, the better. You know, Jim Ross on commentary, Brad Armstrong in there with your champion, you know it's going to be good. That's all that matters. You don't even have to worry about it. Just put them on the card and this, you're fine. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, what, what was great with Brad Armstrong, certainly, uh, I think his run in 92 during that Bill Watts era where pretty much everyone wrestled everyone at one point or another on TV. I mean, you got to see Brad against Liger, Brad against Muda, Brad against Pillman, Austin. I mean, just one great classic TV match after another, week after week after week. And it's just an era that people forget about. But, man, he he put on a clinic every week with a different name. Yeah, just an awesome talent. It's a shame he's no longer with us. And, of course, at this point, Ric Flair's a baby face. Brad Armstrong's a baby face. So it's a face versus face match. Uh, I thought this was a really fun match. Ric Flair works a wrist lock early on. They're in and out of a lot of holds, lots of solid stuff. Good bumping by both. Quick work, solid and snug, I thought. Ric Flair does the flip onto the apron, and of course he's a babyface, so he actually connects with an elbow from the top rope. Brad winds up trying a hip toss in the final moments of the match. Ric Flair counters into an abdominal stretch into a rolling cradle, kind of like the banana split lock. Uh, Gets the win in seven minutes. And post-match, the two hug, and uh, Brad congratulates Ric Flair. This felt like the first seven minutes of, like, a 30-minute match. It was just really getting going for me. They could have really put on a hell of a match. It was good, but just way too short. He got 14 minutes with Luger, only seven minutes here with Flair. I would have loved to have seen a 14-minute Armstrong and Flair match. 
Yeah, me too. Like you said, it just felt like the, the ending came out of nowhere. It felt abrupt. It makes sense because, you know, Flair's your world champion. You don't want him to have to struggle too long on TV with, with somebody like like a Brad Armstrong. At the same time, I'm with you, man. Give me a 30-minute match with these guys, and I, I would be getting my popcorn ready because, you know, that last 22, you know, the 22 to 30-minute mark is just going to be intense and awesome stuff. Even though you probably know who's going to win, let's be real, it's still, they're going to come up with a way to make it very entertaining, and I wish that, that was available somewhere to see. I don't even know if it ever happened, but that'd be, that would have been tremendous. We move on with the show and we get a oddly placed promo from Jim Cornette, a very quick promo. It felt like a 10 second promo made just out of nowhere, just popped up. He talks to Freebirds, says they're dodging the Midnight Express, but the Midnights are going to be here in the 1990s. Well, close, Jim. They'll be here for 1990. I don't know about the 1990s, but the Midnights will be around for another year anyway. And uh, this just felt like a very weird, random promo insert on the show, just in the middle of nowhere, and so short. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what they're going for here either. Flying Brian Pillman in the ring, taking on Cruel Connection. And I still get a kick out of the fact that there's one member of Cruel Connection, but his name is Cruel Connection. Pillman with a missile dropkick, and the ring had no give. I mean, when I watched Brian Pillman land, I cringed for him. But Cruel Connection makes a comeback. Tosses Brian Pillman to the floor, but Brian Pillman right back up, back to the top rope, reverse body block off the top, into the ring, gets the win, 1 minute 42 seconds in a fairly quick squash. And we close the show with a promo from the Steiner brothers. And Scott and Rick are standing there with Missy Hyatt and Robin Green. Scott wants to know, what happened to the glasses and the pigtails on Robin Green? Missy tells him, don't worry about it, and if Rick's happy, Scott's happy says Scott Steiner. Jim Ross says Rick's gotta be happy. Man, that perv Jim Ross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. Scotty talks about the skyscrapers, how huge they are. They're both big men, but it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but rather, it's the size of the fight in the dog, and I couldn't believe Scott got that right. That just feels like something you would have totally botched. Anyways, <laughs> Rick tries to talk about the Freebirds, but he gets distracted by Robin Green in her slutty outfit. So Jim Ross takes over, mentioning Missy Hyatt is taking care of the business aspect of the Steiner Brothers, and Robin Green is taking care of the social aspect, at least of Rick Steiner here. No mention of Eddie Gilbert of the first family anymore. Seems like Eddie Gilbert's been completely wrote off TV. I know that's not the case. I know he continues to pop up into 1990 on the underneath and eventually teaming with Tommy Rich and things, but just seems like Eddie Gilbert's become an afterthought after just going to the limit with the great Muda. Missy just got misted last week. And once again, here we are again. Uh, no selling the mist here, Missy Hyatt. Yeah, Rick looks really uncomfortable. Woman's like rubbing all over him and touching him, and he doesn't like it. I, I don't know. I felt like a lot of these people got, uh, at least Scott and Missy kind of got, well, not necessarily Missy, but Scott just got lost a little bit. Felt like Rick was supposed to say a few more things, but he got distracted. And so Scott had to carry it, and Scott's not ready for that. I don't know if Scott ever developed to the point where he was ready to carry a promo. I know a lot of people like him later on, but that's more of him just being ridiculous and botching his lines and saying stupid shit that you didn't expect him to say. But here, it just felt it just felt a little awkward, a little off. I think Scott was supposed to try to get something over. So why why are they saying if Rick happy, Scott's happy? Like, what's Scott's issue with Robin Green? 
Like, he never really comes out and says it. So we don't really know what the issue is here uh, as far as why Scott's worried about something. And I think Missy says it's going to be okay. Rick's happy. That's all that matters. And I don't know what they're trying to insinuate. I mean, I, I think know he's, just, he's looking out for his brother. I mean, she goes from looking like a nerd to looking like that overnight. You got to question it too. You know, I, I, I would, I mean, I think the only person and it's scary, but the only person being logical here is Scott Steiner. Nobody else is questioning this. How did she transform like this overnight? Nobody, everybody else just accepts it. Jim Ross accepts it a uh, big time. Rick Steiner accepts it. <laughs> Missy's going along with it. Scotty's the only one smart enough. And that's a scary thought. To question it. What the hell happened with this bitch, Rick? What the hell's going on? You know, but. Right, yeah. I, I get that, but it is. The words never really came out. He, he's just like, what's going on? What, 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 why? And then all of a sudden it's just like, well, Rick's happy, so I'm happy. I'm not saying I don't understand. I just think Scott did a bad job of really conveying what his concerns well, were. Let's face it, the Steiner brothers, Steiner. Steiner brothers did their best talking in the ring. And Absolutely. <laughs> and that's where we're at with that. Scott, is, like I said, I don't think Scott's ready for this part of the game just yet. Rick is. Scott, no. On behalf of the Wrestling Memory Grenade and the Russell Copia brand, we are proud to announce our very own Patreon account. We encourage everyone to stop on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia and check out an amazing 14 tiers and depending on your budget, we have everything from as little as a $1 tier to as much as a $100 tier. Get you all sorts of exciting offers. It really all depends on what offer you value the most. You can do anything from join Steve and I right here as co-hosts for an episode of The Grenade, all the way down to unedited versions of the show, early access to upcoming episodes, beat everyone else to the punch, see what we're saying before everyone else gets to hear it, plus my insanely detailed show notes, which I value ever so dearly. You can even pick the flick. And what that means is, if you subscribe to one of our You Pick the Flick tiers, you'll tell us, me and Steve, what show it is you want us to review. It can be a watch-along on the WWE Network, YouTube, Daily Motion. It can even be a live review of a rare show from my personal archive vault of videos at home. No promotion, no territory, no era is off-limits. You can request anything from your favorite WrestleMania, to an episode of 1982 World Class, to the 60-minute classic between Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. from 1970s All Japan. Hell, if you want to put us through the misery, we'll even pull a mystery science theater over here and watch Hell Comes to Frogtown starring Roddy Piper. You tell us what you want us to review, and we'll do our own little watch-along and do our best to entertain you guys and give you guys insight in the process. And it doesn't end there. There's a $5 tier, a Power Patron tier. All you have to do is subscribe $5 to our Patreon account, where you, as the Patreon, get exclusive access to the Power Hour podcast that we release anywhere from two to four times per month, with the potential for bonus episodes being added at any given time. It's unfiltered, uncensored, unedited. We say whatever we think, whatever we feel on just about any topic. We'll answer your questions, review recent pay-per-views. There's even a little segment we like to call Things Meltzer Said, where we pick apart and debate Things Meltzer Said. All of that, plus other random questions, opinions, and stories are shared here on the exclusive Power Hour podcast. Or, for only $2 more, you can subscribe to the $7 tier, the all-access tier, where for $2 more, not only do you gain access to the Power Hour podcast and everything on every lower tier, but you'll also have complete access to our entire full library of random show reviews and watch-alongs we've done and continue to do as a side project. We review everything from the Flair Steamboat 2 out of 3 fall match from Class 6 
all the way down to the Halloween 1985 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. It's a proverbial hodgepodge of randomness, as you never know what we'll review next. And it's exclusive to the All Access tier or any of the higher tiers over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Check it out now. That address again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's WrestleCopia. And we move on to 605 World Championship Wrestling for August 26th. Kick off the show with the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette taking on Keith Steinborn and John Brewer. Stan Lane's hand still bandaged up. Not as bad. Seems to be a little, little less alleviated of the, uh, the bandages anyway. Jim Ross says he tore some tendons. I don't know if that's legit or not, but if it is, that probably took forever to heal completely. I've had that issue myself, and uh, it's, it's not fun. Keith Steinborn. It's just terrible here, by the way, Steve. I don't know if you take notes on how bad these jobbers are. Not just the crazy bumps, but just how bad some of them perform. I don't know what Keith Steinborn has on someone to con- continuously have a job here in the NWA, but he's botching spots left and right. He's mistiming things. He's taking terrible bumps to the point where, and I'll get to it in a minute, but Jim Cornette cuts a promo at some point, and he said they don't even belong in the ring, and I think that was half shoot. I just don't get it. Keith Steinborn was around forever as a job guy, and I just don't see it here. I don't get it here. And it didn't just start here in August. It's been going on all year long. I, I noticed that Bobby looked frustrated. I think he nails him with like a right hand or something after that, just because he just, he did mess up and look like shit for the most part. So uh, yeah, I definitely picked up on that one. Yeah, it was pretty bad. In fact, the spot you're alluding to Bobby Eaton starts, to, starts to go for his swinging neck breaker, but he stops short because Keith Steinborn beats him to the punch and takes the bump on his own. The worst part is he spins the wrong way. And Bobby Eaton just stands there looking down at him like he's a complete idiot. And then, like you said, he, he, he uh, gave him a nice little shot there. Nothing too violent, but Bobby Eaton just letting him know, hey, man, come on. We're on, we're on TBS here. But it was just terrible. Midnight Express picked up the win, though, with a Vegematic on John Brewer. Bobby Eaton gets the pin, 2 minutes and 56 seconds. It's once again time for that Skyscrapers music video set to White Snakes. Now you're gone. It's a, an amazing video. We already talked about it, I know, but... It, I, I didn't mind seeing it again. I love total destruction, and that's what Sid and Dan Spivey bring to the ring. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a pretty solid video, one of the better ones they had. They've done useless things like the dudes and Scott Hall and things like that that never really took off or went anywhere. But this one right here, this is exactly what you want for those skyscrapers. Just total mayhem and destruction, like you said, and uh, that's what this video highlights. So it, me personally... It makes me get excited to even see these guys. Like, I can't wait to see them again after seeing this video because if this is what they're doing to these jobbers, I, I want to see them do it again. Yeah, it's just um, it's again, just a quick cool. reminder of how devastating the skyscrapers are. And we'll see them here on this episode of uh, World Championship Wrestling. We come back from the video, and it's promo time with Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. This is where Cornette says Steinborn and Brewer don't belong in a wrestling ring. I felt like that was at least Cornette uh, half-shooting. Uh, tomorrow... On the main event, it's Bobby Eaton taking on Jimmy Garvin. They've been tag team champions of the year twice. They've been former two-time world tag team champions. And the Midnights are looking for that third time on top, a three-peat as world tag team champions. But first, Bobby Eaton has to go through Jim Garvin. Lots of teams have been claiming to be the best, but where are they now, says Jim Cornette. The Midnight Express are better than ever. Yeah, pretty decent promo. Get you ready for their match. Really running the mill. I mean, it feels like, I think we talked about this earlier in the year when they didn't really have anything for him and they were just kind of talking and basic. Uh, obviously Cornette is way better when he has a few to sink his teeth into. 
Uh, he's just trying to nudge his nose in this business with the Freebirds instead of uh, them actually being in a feud. Right. Um, you get a little TV feud here, but it just doesn't seem like it's anything for them to really sink his teeth into and get some heat on it. So uh, the promos definitely were better earlier on in the year with Paulie and them. Right, yeah, I think it's been months now since Jim Cornette has really had anything to talk about. He's just making a go of it the best he can. And the Midnights, like you said, they're in a kind of a mini feud with the Freebirds here on TV, but really the Freebirds are also in a feud with the Steiner Brothers, which is their, their real feud, if you will. So it's kind of odd seeing this play out, but I do admire that they're at least building from television show to television show. They're doing a promo today for the main event tomorrow, so at least the NWA's got that going for them at this point. And it's on to a Terry Funk music video, or at least I think you can call it a music video. It's set to Terry Funk's entrance theme. And as much as I love watching Terry Funk come out to the theme, it doesn't work here uh, as a music video <laughs> anyway. No, it definitely does not. It, it fits Terry Funk, absolutely, but uh, not to a, a video, a highlight video <clears throat> of him just dumping people on, uh, on their heads with pile drivers. It, it, it doesn't work. So as over as the Skyscrapers video is, they find a miss here with the Terry Funk video. We move on with the show. And we learned that Jim Cornette has joined hosting duties with Jim Ross for the duration of the show and is back to the ring with the skyscrapers led to the ring by Teddy Long taking on Trent Knight and Mike Justice and Slib slaps around Dan Spivey to get him psyched up to get the match going and Dan Spivey gets pissed off and he's ready and poor Mike Justice Sp Spivey just mauls Mike Justice beats him down and then Trent Knight's turn takes Trent Knight to the corner and just pounds on him and pounds on him until Spivey is disqualified. And the, uh, the job guys, Trent Knight and Mike Justice, get the win by disqualification in two minutes and 45 seconds. And as the bell is being called, Sid just murders Mike Justice with that violent-ass clothesline. I think it was more of a punch this time. But he really killed him and then laid him out with a nasty-looking powerbomb. I was just like, for fuck's sakes, man. This entire weekend, Sid's just been murdering people worse than ever. And just what a tag uh, team uh, as that, that was the last thing I wrote here is just what a team. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're tremendous. Like uh, early on, they was, they didn't know re really what they wanted to be. They were working wrestling matches, submissions, things like that. They had the stupid KO stuff. And now uh, they finally hit their stride. You know, they, they're just destroying people. They don't give a shit if they win or lose. You just don't want to mess with them because they're going to, they're going to kill you. That's how I remember the skyscrapers, and that's what I like to see out of this team. And it's so damn fun to watch. Yeah, and if you remember back a couple months ago when they first formed, they started doing this gimmick, this finish here, where they get disqualified for continuously pummeling the job guys. And it didn't work then. It was kind of slow and came out of nowhere. And the entire match, like you said, was submission holds and things like that. It works here because they've literally murdered the guys, and then they beat the shit out of them some more. And the referee tries to step in, and Spivey doesn't necessarily nail Nick Patrick, but he kind of shoves him away and continues to beat the hell out of Trent Knight in the corner until even Sid Vicious has to pull Dan Spivey off. He looks like a violent bulldog here as he's just laying into Trent Knight. And the baby, or excuse me, the job guys get the win here by disqualification. Fun little story. As we go on, we uh, see that Jim Cornette and Jim Ross are, are discussing something on a piece of paper. They're reviewing a fan letter from a woman named Natasha in Rockingham, North Carolina. I don't know how legit this is. It seemed legit in which she spoke out against recent comments made by Jim Ross towards NWA U.S. champion Lex Luger. She calls Jim Ross a P-head. 
they they kept it PC here. I'm not sure. I'm assuming pisshead. I'm not really sure, but I uh, just uh, I thought it was funny that they that they incorporated this. Of course, this comes into play later in a Lex Luger promo. But I thought it was funny that they that they even brought this up. They brought out this fan letter. Of course, they like I said, they follow up later with Lex Luger in this. Yeah, it was pretty funny, and I, they keep on going back to it. And I think Jim Ross at the end kind of sums it up. I hope your parents are happy with the way you write to people during through the mail. <laughs> yeah, they they call it time. illegal and uh, um, it violates uh, <laughs> government rules. Uh, I guess calling people names <laughs> in the mail. I, so uh, it was funny. It was it was, it was good stuff though. Uh, these guys, I think they work great together. It's nice to hear Jim Cornette hop on commentary and kind of be with him throughout the show. It just breaks up the monotony of, because it seems like the main event, not, yeah, the main event is just Jim Ross doing commentary. Power Hour is just Jim Ross doing it. Saturday night was just him doing it. Um, he hosts so Worldwide nice Alone. Yeah, it's nice to have Cornette on here to kind of break it up a little bit instead of just having Ross talk by himself over and over. And then I like how they incorporated this throughout the show. They keep going back to it, and it never yeah. really gets old. So pretty good. Yeah, there should there should be no television program that lasts two hours that features one person as the host of the show, the interviewer of the show, the comment, the sole commentator on the show. It's just too much for Jim Ross to handle, and it's too much for me as a fan. I, I don't want to hear Jim Ross' voice as good as he is. I don't want to hear him alone speak to himself or to me for two hours straight without any interruption with, with another voice. So having Jim Cornette here, it's a, it's a pleasant surprise. And Jim Cornette's been waiting. Jim Ross has been putting it over, and it's finally time. It's the Rick Steiner vignette where he takes woman on a date, or, or that's the way they're selling it anyway. No, this is not back to the Atlanta Zoo. This time it's supposed to be a real date. And we see Rick Steiner, I, I'm assuming we're at Rick Steiner's house, with Jim Ross as Jim Ross of all people. Gives Rick Steiner a pep talk. He's coaching Rick Steiner on what to do for his date. I don't know if I want to take advice from, from Jim Ross here, especially the way he comments on uh, Missy Hyde. I don't know if that's going to get Rick another date. But here he is, JR, pep talking Rick Steiner for his date with Robin Green. Rick is wearing a cut-off T-shirt and has a special dinner planned, a Supreme Pizza. Rick says he has 90 minutes of Leave it to Beaver planned to watch on TV. And Jim Ross randomly asks him, do you have your driver's license back? I don't know what happened there. I, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know if Rick even re- replies back. I don't know if he gives, Jim's, uh, gives Jim a straight answer on that. But So basically, Jim Ross asks him, he told Rick to wear his best shirt. So Rick's went and found one of his cutoff shirts that he wears around the house. He's got the special dinner planned, like Jim Ross insisted. What's it going to be? It's going to be a pizza. Well, that's not very special, says JR. Oh, but Rick t- tells him it's a supreme pizza. And, uh, of course, they're going to watch a movie. What movie? No, it's not necessarily a movie. They're going to watch some TV together. 90 minutes, I'll leave it to Beaver. Good plug, too, for the TBS station who was, who was rocking the Leave it to Beaver show and the new Leave it to Beaver show here in the late 80s. So it works out well there. <laughs> so Rick alerts Jim Ross that Robin Green is staying in a hotel suite that Rick is paying for. Jim Ross accompanies Rick to the hotel room to give him a little bit of a boost in confidence. JR does the knock on the door for Rick. Rick's a little shy. Robin Green answers the door, and oh my God, not just oh my God at Robin Green, but oh my God at Jim Ross and Rick Steiner as we turn into, I felt like, I don't know if you ever watched it. I, it was on TV when I was growing up, the old episodes of The Little Rascals, The Hour Gang, when they would do the, do the big bug-eyed, uh, oh, what am I looking at here? Oh, Tay. It was, it was insane. The comedy ensues here 
as Jim Ross and Rick Steiner give each other these bug-eyed looks. They're clearly playing to the camera, the camera being Robin Green's eyes, I would imagine here. And we cut back to Robin Green. She's decked out, I should point out, in her woman-type attire. So she's looking extra beautiful now. And, wow, just woman appears in front of her eyes. She's still called Robin Green at this point. Jim Ross, as Rick Steiner steps into the hotel room, Jim Ross once again gets another camera shot. His look is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to get in the door with him. But, no, yeah, this was – it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know – why did she turn into this? Like, did she just get a hold of Rick's credit card and decide to give herself a makeover? Is that the story they're trying to tell? I don't know. They never really tell us. Um, it's just they see her at the hotel and they're like, holy shit. And that's it. It, it just cuts out of there. So yeah, it's, um, it's just a new character. And it was a plan all along, obviously, is what they wind up doing in quick fashion. Really, the whole storyline becomes rushed. And obviously... And we might as well let the cat out of the bag. I'm sure a lot of people know already. Doom's on their way in. They're going to be managed by a woman. I won't go into the whole storyline yet because I want people that don't know at least to be a little surprised uh, or what to expect. But obviously Doom is not planned here yet in a month or so. There they are. So everything feels last minute. So maybe this was a last minute change too in the gimmick. It makes you wonder if like with Ric Flair taking over, and I'm assuming him and Jim Ross are pretty buddy-buddy. And Ross, this is his story that he's been trying to tell. It's been going on forever. Maybe I'm just wondering if Flair said, I, we're not doing this stuff anymore, so you can you need to get to get to the finish line. Uh, and basically allow Jim Ross to finish his story instead of just cutting it out altogether. Because it, it seems like it, for over the last couple of weeks, it just felt extremely rushed. They were doing their thing in the crowd, slow, slow playing it. And then... Next thing you know, they're on the date, and then the next thing you know, she's woman. So it's like bam, 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 and it's just different compared to what they've been doing. As everything was so slow with this with this story, anyway. And uh, I know you've been paying close attention to the comments that Jim Ross makes week to week, especially about the ladies. So we're back at center stage, and Jim Cornette says something has changed in Robin Green's jeans uh, because she didn't look like that before, Steve. But Jim Ross says. He had to change his jeans as well. Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't we, pick up on that one. Yeah, oh yeah. God. So Jim Cornette's uh, <laughs> something, something along the lines of uh, something has changed in Robin Green's jeans because she didn't look like that before. And Jim Ross responds, yeah, I had to change my jeans too. And I was just like, oh, my God, dude, really? Like, you went there? And in 1989, Jesus, man. But we learned <laughs> that Robin Green will be here today with the Steiners on the program later on in the show. It's back to the ring for Tommy Rich taking on the Enforcer. Armbar, Thez Press. Tommy Rich gets the win. Two minutes, 54 seconds. I love Tommy Rich for the mere fact that he is the easiest man to take notes on. Yeah, we, we appreciate you, Tommy Rich. I, I think you did a hip toss in there, too. So I apologize. As long as it involves the, as long as it involves the arm, he's, he's doing it. <laughs> so... It's promo time, and we're back now with Jim Ross and United States champion, the total package, Lex Luger. Jim Ross shows Lex his fan mail from Natasha. Luger rips it up. Lex talks Tommy Rich and even cuts a promo on him. It really, I can't get into this, and I know we know it's not good. There's really no story behind it. But what really gets me is just watching this. You remember you talk about, and I, I know it's been mentioned before on other podcasts and things, but that not the it factor so much as the eye test. And 
Tommy Rich doesn't pass that eye test for Lex Luger. However, visualizing it doesn't pass the eye test for me. So as Lex Luger's cutting a promo on Tommy Rich, for as much as I, I respect Tommy Rich and what he, what he did in Georgia and things like that, it's not passing the eye test for me in my mind here as Luger's cutting this promo. It feels beneath Lex Luger. It feels like Lex, Lex Luger's out here cutting a promo uh, against the guy that opens the show. Lex Luger, he was built perfectly throughout this year, and it just feels like Ricky Steamboat leaving really kind of screwed him over because Steamboat obviously is right there with him. I mean, Luger should be, you know, Luger, if he was in a feud with Steamboat, is trying to get where Steamboat's at. So he's not even like the top, top guy in that feud. And then Steamboat leaves, we all know that, and now he's stuck with somebody like Tommy Rich. And again, no knock on Tommy Rich, it's just, what Luger's saying in his promos is just a promo, but it's true. Like a dude sitting on his couch, and I know you said he's been working, but to the most part, like to most people, all they see is what's on TV. And Tommy Rich just coming in off the couch and right into the U.S. title feud, it makes absolutely no sense. Luger talking about it makes it just doesn't resonate with me. I have zero interest. It's one of those matches where you just know on paper Tommy Rich isn't beating Lex Luger for the belt. In 1989, I know this. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. So, when you have your U.S. title, it needs to be in a feud that's relevant. It's over and things like that. And this just isn't it. I wish yeah. they would have did a, a mulligan and put in Brad Armstrong or just for maybe a month on that, or just give him something better because this is this is terrible. Yeah, and he doesn't necessarily need to feud with anyone. He just needs somebody better to work with. It doesn't have to be a six-month heated rivalry so necessarily. It just needs to be someone that Lex can uh, feed off of and, and continue to get better. And Brad Armstrong's a good uh, name. Brian Pillman's a good name. I would have enjoyed, you know, rather than Dr. Death being stuck in this rotunda feud that we'll be talking about here in a minute, maybe Dr. Death and Lex Luger, that would have been a hell of a hell of a feud. But maybe Lex wouldn't have went for that because one mistake and boop, <laughs> Lex would be paying for it. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, another thing that'd be cool, like with a Brad Armstrong or a Pillman, you could do a non-title match. They get a roll up on him, catch him off guard a little bit. Yeah, because he's know, walking he's around, like, he's cocky. Bit. Yeah. Yeah, and then that would that would have been tremendous because you know the matches are going to be a lot better. There's going to be a lot of heat. You know there's going to be – they already know there's a possibility that they can win, and, and it just adds to each match afterwards. But Tommy Rich, he's showing nothing. Now, if he would have done better in the ring – like with oh, the jobbers yeah. and things like that, it wouldn't be so bad, but he's looked like garbage this entire run. And seeing when there with Lex Luger is not good for anybody. We move on with the show. We see feud highlights of the Dr. Death Mike Rotunda scientific challenge. Of course, Doc gets disqualified in match one. Doc gets the pinfall in match two. Match three winds up becoming a no disqualification match in which Mike Rotunda wins thanks to help from Teddy Long of all people. So Mike Rotunda actually wins the best of three series, but the feud is not over. And to the ring, it's Dr. Death taking on Bill Ford. And this, this right here, the commentary during this match, this is why I love Jim Ross and Jim Cornette out there together. They, they spent plenty of time, both of them, not just with Dr. Death, but with one another in the mid South territory earlier in the 1980s. And so they start passing along stories of Dr. Death between the two. They both know the stories. So I really enjoyed it. They talk about the time Dr. Death received, 108 stitches in his eye and went back out and wrestled later in the same night. Insane. They, Jim Cornette says the scar and he gives this, and this is another one too. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on these, but Jim Cornette says the scar 
on Dr. Death's nose is from a fight that he had with a fan in Alexandria, Louisiana. Doc power slammed a guy into the back of a pickup truck. Not into the bed of the pickup truck, but into the back of the pickup truck. And I, as he drove him down to the ground, I guess the hitch caught Doc in the nose and ripped his nose <laughs> up, up up his nose. And I just, I'm trying to figure it I'm thinking, that's the first time I heard that story. And I'm just like, Jesus, man, this guy. And I just love that these guys know these stories. They're, this is why I wish they were both out there. This would be a great uh, commentary team, you know, moving forward with World Championship Wrestling. And then last but not least, and we got one more story out of this match. Steve Williams got the nickname Dr. Death back in high school because he wore a hockey mask to wrestle uh, on the, in the, back in high school because he broke his nose playing football, but he didn't want to take time off. So he threw a hockey mask on, and they allowed it, and he wrestled with it there in high school as well. And friends thought he looked like a wrestler, so they came up with the name Dr. Death for him, and it stuck. Well, that's, yeah, it's pretty cool, and it, it just goes to show, like, it, it makes sense, too, because Cornette, you know, he managed Dr. Death a little bit over the summer uh, into the war game. So it, you can actually play it off like in this – learning his history but you can just see how much jim Cornette knows about wrestling all this stuff sounds legit it doesn't sound like he made it up well, i don't know why you'd make up that <laughs> these stories just to get right. somebody over but uh i heard that story about the 108 i was i, I think i told yes. it before where i was down at a SummerSlam signing and some dude in front of me was talking about him right um and so like that stuff resonates this was in 2008 or yeah 2008 uh, where I heard this story, and this was back in the mid-80s where he remembered it, and he still remembered Dr. Death doing it. Yeah, just an incredible, insanely tough individual, and a lot of these things just sound, that sounds brutal, like knocking your nose on a trailer hitch while you're power slamming somebody. <laughs> uh, no thanks, man. I'm, I'm good. I'd be... I'd like to know for- how many bottles of liquor the guy that got into a fight with Dr. Death drank before he thought it was a good idea to start shit with Dr. Death Steve Williams in a bar parking lot. I, I, I know it was different times. I know it was Louisiana in different times. So I can see it happening. Those guys are pretty tough down there, and they're pretty crazy too. But I, I, I'm assuming Dr. Death came out on the winning end of that one. The trailer, it sounded like he came out on the winning end. <laughs> that's, that's possible too. We also learned during this match on commentary, I guess this was during the time where Mike Tyson was at his peak. Uh, he hadn't lost to Buster Douglas yet. That was coming up later next year. Uh, so during this time, it was very prominent for football players, wrestlers, other tough guys out there to open or issue open challenges to Mike Tyson as if it was ever going to actually happen. They actually name drop Bam Bam Bigelow, who's not in the company right now, but they name drop Bam Bam as one of the guys who has challenged Mike Tyson. That would have been an interesting one. Jim Ross would love to see a Dr. Death Mike Tyson fight. Yeah, that would have been fun for about three seconds, but if the if the gloves were off or if, if Doc was allowed to get a hold of you, this that wouldn't have lasted too long. If Doc had to trade punches, well, we saw what happened when Doc traded punches with Bart Gunn. Yeah, I know this is a much younger Dr. Death as well, however, so who knows what would have happened, but obviously Mike Tyson, a trained boxer, I'm not a fool. If it was boxer versus boxer, Doc might have stuck his head in there a few times, but eventually Mike would have probably got the Duke there. Uh, wrestling, you know, if, if he had been able to uh, wrestle Mike Tyson, <laughs> that would have probably been the end of Mike Tyson's career as a boxer as well. Oh, yeah, easy. So it's just uh, it depends on the rules there. Probably do an exhibition where you can both come out winners, I guess. But Tyson ain't going for that in 89. No way. 
And I should mention that there was actually an, a match going on during all of this commentary. It was Dr. Death over Scrap Iron Bill Ford. Doc gets the win with the Oklahoma Stampede, only a minute and 46 seconds. It's followed up by a Dr. Death promo. He admits that Mike Rotunda is an All-American. He puts that over. But this ain't the amateurs, Mike. It's the pros. Doc has been a four-time All-American himself, but he's also been a pro world champion referencing the UWF. The feud continues, and they'll meet again at the Clash 8 next month. It's once again the A&W Cream Slam, Cream Soda, King of the Slams. I'm glad I don't have to say this anymore after this week. And the winner, once again, Bob Cottle presents Ric Flair for the trophy. So it's prominently featured here, even on TBS. Ric Flair, King of the Slams. Woo! And back to the ring. Samoan SWAT team still with Paulie Dangerously in their corner. They're taking on Greg Evans and Richard Sartain. We haven't seen them in a while, and that's because they were the Ding Dongs. So here they are, still together as a team, matching tights here, but they're no longer the Ding Dongs. <laughs> nice. I was wondering, because they look, they look like they've been working together for a while. And yeah, they were they a team down in Georgia. Bit, yeah. Right, that's, that's when the, yeah, uh, they were brought up. They had already been a tag team down in Georgia on the Indies, or whatever you want to call it, Outlaws, if maybe they still were here in the 80s. But yeah, they were a tag team down there. They were brought up. They did some jobs, if you remember, as a team and, and in singles as well. And then eventually they became the Ding Dongs, and now here we are. They're still teaming, at least a little bit here. And they're taking on the SST here. So I, would, I thought to myself, wouldn't it have been great if, you know how they like to repeat spots and angles and shit anyway on these shows? Since it was done on syndication, the skyscrapers unmasking the Ding Dongs, wouldn't it have been great here if we got to see it all over again with the SST version? I, I can only imagine it would have been just as fun. Oh, yeah, it would have been just as good. You'd probably have them use their animalistic uh, instincts and like, <laughs> bite off their mask or something like that because that's something <laughs> stupid they would have them do. But, uh, yeah, they would have killed those guys just as bad as the the uh, skyscrapers. I'm kind of sad. Like, the SST's been kind of toned down a little bit. They yeah. haven't been really – I mean, they're doing some stuff, but it's not like it was for that stretch there. I wonder if – We haven't seen the Road Warriors around a lot, though. You know, it's hard when they're in the middle of a few with the Warriors. Obviously, they're – facing the roadies right now in cage matches on the house shows. They'll face them at the clash as well. It's hard to get a feud over when only one guy is on TV, unless you're Terry Funk, then you can get away with it for as proven for five to six weeks before it starts to, you know, uh, f- fall down the hill a little bit. But the SST here, they really have nobody to work with, with the road warriors barely ever around for TV tapings. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's just weird. Their offense has changed. Kind of no, I agree. They're they're, not just, they're they're giving they're giving the opponents point. offense, and they do that here, especially with uh, Greg Evans early on. He looked pretty decent, so I I'm assuming that's why they gave him a few moves early on in this match. Before they were coming in and just murdering people, one murder move after another. Now it's more of an actual wrestling match to some degree. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just curious to what what changed. So that's all. Yeah, we, so we get some decent stuff from Evans early on in here, and Samu winds up catching Evans' reverse co- cross-body block, but Sartain comes in and dropkicks Evans on top. And I won't call it a near fall, but he did get a pinfall attempt on Samu, so I was really impressed that they gave gave the ding-dong something after they were the ding-dongs. But at the end of the day, it's Samu with the back superplex and Fatu splash off the top rope on Sartain, and the SST pick up the win 3 minutes and 28 seconds there. So... It may not be the same squat. And again, you got to remember, this is a two hour program. So their match that would have been 90 seconds is now three and a half minutes. So now they've got to figure out a way to prolong the match without just 
headbutting and biting and things like that. So I guess I'd rather see something like this than a bunch of ground and pound type stuff with a bunch of dead time. I don't know. I mean, it's subjective to whoever's watching it, I suppose. And this team right here, this this team, I know, not the ding-dongs, but give Richard Sartain and Greg Evans some sort of gimmick like they did the State Patrol. Right. You can have another another one of those jobber-to-the-star type teams. Because they look, like you said, they look pretty decent here. They didn't look bad at all. Yeah, they were. unfortunately, they were gifted the <laughs> gifted uh, the gimmick of the ding-dongs, <laughs> which just didn't work out. And I, I stick to it, dude. There was that one match a couple weeks ago. I think they found... The gimmick, they found the Ding Dong's gimmick that was going to work, but by then it was too late. <laughs> they yeah, they no, might have been able to make that Bushwhacker-esque kids thing work the way they incorporated actual wrestling matches in with the whole Ding Dong gimmick without going overboard with the, the bells on the body and the bell in the corner and all that horse shit. I thought we finally found the middle ground that would have worked as a, as a curtain jerker match, as a way to get the crowd going, as a way to get the kids up and cheering. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. A week or two later, and Sid Vicious is, is <laughs> and Spivey have have done away with the Ding Dongs. I don't. And what's weird is they debuted at the Clash, and then I think we only seen them maybe two or three times after that. So yeah. I don't. Everybody's like, "Oh, this is a terrible gimmick and all that," and they, it was horrible. And it is. I'm not. I'm not defending it at all. But they didn't really get the time to go out there and develop the character or the gimmick. Uh, they didn't get enough time, man. It was only on TV like four times, and then Sid's killing them. So, um, this is something that didn't even need I, to be would, on TV. You know, stick yeah. it on every house show for six months, leave it off TV until they figure it out. And then it's like, hey, this is starting to work. And these guys, there's nothing wrong with keeping these guys on the payroll and doing jobs. They're going to make you look good. Uh, it's not like they're bad job guys, especially uh, Evans. I think Evans is the much better of the two. But as a team, they've had time together. So it's. It's unfortunate it was cut out from under him. I hate saying that about the ding-dong gimmick. I'm sure I'm very much in the minority, especially the way it's been shit on for the last 30 years. And there's some gimmicks that on paper look good. Like Norman, aspects of that gimmick look good, but then you see it on TV and it, and it doesn't work out so much. Then there's gimmicks that just sound like shit and you really, you really can't make anything out of them. Like the Red Rooster. I don't know that you're going to get much out of the ding-dongs either. But if you really were just keeping them out there for the kids, I didn't see... I didn't. I, I didn't think it was that. But the last time we saw him, I just didn't think it was that. Not not when the skyscrapers killed them, but the time before that when they actually won a match. I didn't think it was that bad. Like I bought it. I thought it was actually more entertaining than the Bushwhackers because I hated the Bushwhackers. And obviously these guys can still move around the ring and bump. So I, I don't know. And also, I think you made the comment too. We both did that. They bought into a the wor- one of the worst gimmicks in history. Right. Way better than Johnny and Shane did for the dynamic dudes gimmick. The Ding Dongs get shit on, but man, they look better than the dudes. And I know that's not saying much as a team. Yeah, and and, and it's as it's a team, little yeah. bit not fair because they've been a team before they even came to the NWA. But at the same time, Johnny and Shane have had months now to get their chemistry together, and it just is not working. And they certainly, like you said, they have not welcomed the gimmick as much as they're trying. Their hearts aren't in it. Yeah, absolutely. We continue on with the show, though, and it's Dick Slater. It's our first look at Dick Slater, though they pretend as if last week's episode actually aired, and so we're supposed to already know that Dick Slater has joined the JTEX Corporation. And here's a promo from Dick Slater and Gary Hart. This great crowd here chanting, we want Sting, we want Sting, and later on they're going to get this match. Hey, well, so do I want Sting. You people just keep on screaming, Sting, Sting. Because that's what I'm here for today. And I hope Sting 
I hope you got the guts and the intestinal fortitude to laugh with Dick Slater in that ring because I am the true master when it comes to delivering pain and blues. Now, Sting, you're looking for a wrestling match. I'm going to give you a little one, but then I'm going after a piece of your body. And when I get done with you today, Sting, in front of the whole world, they're going to be calling him something else. And I like to say it, but I don't think I can get it out. <laughs> Do you understand while the nation watches the devious plan of JTEX Corporation is going to begin to happen right before your eyes? I promised you that Flair and Sting would be eliminated. What? Could this be the day? Don't leave your television set. Because very, very soon, Dickie Slater is going to take you to the land of mayhem, pain, and torture. And let me tell you, I would rather be in the ring with a gorilla than Dickie Slater the way he feels today. And I don't know that last comment about being in the, uh, the ring with a gorilla instead of Dick Slater. I don't know if Gary Hart did this on purpose, if it just worked out this way. But there was a, a few years back, Dusty Rhodes was selling that he had a partner that he was going to bring in to help him uh, take on the, the evil baddies of the NWA at the time. And he brings out a little cage, a shark cage, with a gorilla inside, not a real gorilla, a guy in a costume, dressed as a gorilla, acting as if he's a real gorilla. It's not a very good costume either. And they sell it for a few weeks. Who is in this cage? Who is the, the gorilla? It's uh, Dusty's partner. Dusty's partner is going to be a gorilla. There's even a week where Mama Gorilla comes out to visit. So if you think Vince cornered the market nonsense, you'd be dead wrong. Uh, but, but anyways, the gorilla turned out to be Dick Slater. Now, was Dick Slater underneath the costume all those weeks? Probably not. But it winds up being Dick Slater when it comes match time at the arena. So uh, I, I didn't know if Gary Hart did that on purpose because Gary wasn't there at the time, but I'm sure he knew about it. So Gary wasn't there at the time, but I just thought that was kind of funny that he'd rather be in the ring with a gorilla instead of Dick Slater. I wasn't sure if that was like a, a, a knock on, on that old storyline or not. And then there's a, a better story here that uh, I, have, I have to mention. I have to bring it up. For those who don't know, Dick Slater was one of the main eventers in Mid-South Wrestling prior to his brief and forgettable run in the WWF. And during that period, Dick Slater was the North American champion. He was the main event heel at the time. And he had a lovely valet uh, by the name of Dark Journey, who was, I'm not sure if she was African-American or mixed or what this deal was, but uh, she was a, a very good-looking young lady. And that was Dick's girlfriend. And he incorporated her into becoming his valet. And she actually, after they split up, she continued on in the UWF after Dick was long gone. She continued to play a manager for the next year or two, at least. And uh, I think she even wound up here in Crockett at one point for just a little bit. Anyways, though, story goes that they were on the outs one weekend and Dark Journey spent the weekend with a green rookie, Sting, who was also in Bill Watts' territory at the time. Well, <laughs> story got around and I, I remembered the story. So I said, I know somebody's told this story in a shoot. So I Googled it real quick and Tracy Smothers, God, God rest his soul. He did two separate shoots where he, he brings it up. They don't even ask him about it. He wants to tell the story. And so uh, I had to listen to both versions. They were both spot on identical, but they were, it was, it was great listening to Tracy tell the story. Tracy was such a great storyteller in the locker room. I guess Dick Slater had been Booker for a little bit for Bill Watts. 
and then Terry Taylor took over as Booker. And they didn't get along, Slater and Terry Taylor, but they were playing cards together one day in the locker room when Tracy came back from his match, and he said, I know something ain't right here. And Dick Slater had his hands all taped up. And Tracy said there, were, there was no more matches to be had. So he knew at that point some shit was about to go down. And out of nowhere, Dick Slater tells Terry Taylor, you know, I'll be right back. And I guess Slater gets up, goes over to the locker room where Sting's at, and proceeds to beating the living shit out of Sting's face, even sticks his head in the toilet and flushes it repeatedly on Sting. I mean, beat him bloody and black and blue. Missy tells the story too, actually. I, I listened to Missy Hyde's version. It's all pretty much identical. But Slater made Sting look so bad, he, he had to make sure he put more paint on than usual in order to cover up how terrible his face was was messed up. And there's speculation. The Warrior was there too still at this point. He hadn't left the company to go to Dallas. And so Warrior was Sting's partner, the Ultimate Warrior, for those who don't know. And just in case he was going to try anything, there's, there's some stories that say he was attempting to maybe help Sting out. I, I find it hard to believe knowing the Warrior, but may, maybe he was trying to help Sting out. I guess Dick Murdoch was in the, the locker room as well, and Dick Murdoch grabbed the Warrior by the throat and shoved him up against the wall and pinned him uh, up against the wall, threatening the Warrior's life if he had gotten involved while Dick Slater proceeded to beat the living shit out of Sting. You didn't do that. You shouldn't do it now, but you didn't do that back then. I mean, repercussions were coming, and Sting got it here. He was green, you know? I mean, a young guy, a beautiful woman, what you gonna do? But he paid for it at the end of the day, and uh, I just, I love Tracy telling the story, and as Tracy points out, and Missy too, can you imagine Dick Murdoch, who looks like he looks, now we're not gonna question how tough he was, but he looks like he looks, and he's pinning a 280-pound jacked-up 20, young, early 20s Ultimate Warrior up against up against the wall, like, the warrior can't even move. You don't mess with that breed of wrestler, Dick Slater, Dick Murray. You don't do that. No. No, you, that's just common sense. Like, you could tell. Like, I would take my chances with the warrior over somebody like a, a Dick Murdoch, Dick Slater. Those guys just look like they don't give a shit. They'll kick your ass, or they're going to beat your ass. Even if you get your ass, they get their ass kicked. Yeah, too. they don't care. So, they don't care. Um, they're going <laughs> to... One way or the other, one or or both are going to get hurt. That's that's all. That's the bottom line. So you just don't mess with those type of people. You definitely don't mess. I'm assuming, and I'm this is just me. I know how those people think, or at least you can try to guess how they think. You don't mess with their money, and you don't mess with their women. That's my guess. And uh, right. <laughs> Sting did a no no there. And uh, and he was young, he and he was dumb, and he was full of something. <laughs> Dick Dick Slater knocked something else out of him. And I guess the story goes to Eddie Gilbert was in there to beg, plead, beg Dick Slater to stop murdering Sting because, but I think Eddie realized that Sting made a mistake and, you know, he's, he's a potential future star. Let's, let's not kill this guy. You know, I guess Eddie took a liking to Sting anyway. So yeah, uh, Eddie, Gil, Eddie yeah, Gilbert might've saved Sting a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Eddie probably just like, man, we don't need to run this guy off. Right. Make some money with me. I can see it. Yeah, it's, it's I never heard that before. That's crazy. Yeah, and I, I'd heard the story many, many, many years ago, and I'm sure it was from a shoot interview back when those really first burst onto the scene 20 years ago. But I've remembered the story ever since, and it's stuck with me. And I hadn't heard it so detailed as uh, Tracy's version because he just walked into the locker room right before it happened, and it was really fresh in his mind, even cited everyone in the room, <laughs> like even like the job guys, like I'm like DJ Peterson and stuff. So I just, I, I thought it was pretty cool. 
And uh, it's uh, it's funny because here we are, Dick Slater versus Sting on this episode. So it all ties together. And I'm sure I'm sure Dick Slater, you know, he hasn't even been a focal point, uh, you know, since Mid South, and he hasn't really gotten a really big paycheck. I'm sure he made a few bucks when he was working for the WWF in '86. It's another deal here. Three years later, Dick getting another a shot at uh, you know working for a major company. So I'm sure he's going to behave himself at least. At least as you don't you don't push the wrong buttons because again it goes back to at the end of the day these guys just don't give a shit. No, they don't. Is Dark Journey's the one that married Manny's not married, but Manny's Tully Blanchard, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, for a for a brief period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. We'll continue on with the show, though. It's Brad Armstrong over the Cuban assassin. Basic stuff here. Fidel Sierra off the top rope of the body block, but Brad kind of floats over on top, gets the win, five minutes, 21 seconds. Thought it was a very odd choice for a finish, especially with the heel coming off the top rope with the body block and the face rolling over on top to get the win, but just felt out of place for a finish, too. No reason Brad Armstrong shouldn't be pinning the Cuban with a Russian leg sweep or at least a a definitive finished move instead of this float over here. Show goes on, and it's time for the Danger Zone. This week's guests are the Iron Sheik. You're going to love that, Steve. Along with Ron Simmons, his new protege. And they look absolutely ridiculous together. Talk about an odd couple. Sheik, well, he has some words for Bali dangerously. I got it right here. I was going to play the entire three-minute clip, but it kind of breaks down. And unless you're watching it, some of it's hard to really distinguish what the hell's going on. But I do want to get at least some of it in. So let's listen to at least part of the segment. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. You know, on the last Danger Zone, I was honored to have a great amateur athlete by the name of Mike Rotunda right out here on the danger zone tonight not only do i have two great amateur athletes i have a man that's been a heavyweight world champion in the professional ranks as well and i'm talking about the legendary iron sheik and you know sheik everywhere i've gone lately not only are women trying to get dates with me but they're saying paulie dangerously what is the deal with the iron sheik trying to find a tag team partner for the all-american ron simmons you absolutely right, Ron. So, I mean, uh, Polly Dangerously, especially uh, you are coming from New York City, intelligent Jew American to the TBS, the strongest station in the world. My pleasure to I talk to you and same thing, Ron Simmons. I want to let you know you are New York City man. Yeah. You know about the Orange Sheik, yeah. an intelligent American wrestling fans all over the world know about the Orange Sheik just about like yourself. Now, I don't have to talk about myself. Recently, anywhere we wrestling with my young star, a training partner around Simmons, all the people call USA, USA, try to make my Muslim brother and myself confused. But remember, polydentiously, I come to America for one reason. Try training Ron Simmons to make him to be better and the best, just like he was a football player. No, he's going to be better for wrestling, professional, toughest, roughest sport. May, I'm going to make him ready for Ric Flair, a stink, all tag team champion, whatever who is, because you know what I'm talking. Intelligent American people know what I'm, what I'm talking. No. You're just a man. Now I'm starting to not realize what he's talking. So we'll cut out the last minute or so of this promo. It really breaks down here. Uh, Paulie does talk to Ron Simmons for a brief period in that point. But uh, was I mistaken? Or did the Iron Sheik refer to Paulie dangerously as an intelligent Jew American? <laughs> he definitely did. 
the one thing that point that stands out here is that this makes it's complete garbage. And the fact of the matter is, is because Ron Simmons here, it looks like the Ron Simmons that we all know and are accustomed to, especially in WCW. He just looked like a million bucks here. He had like on a purple tank top, his glasses on, and he looked jacked. Like he looked like he's been in the, the weight room defining the muscles he already had. And like I say, this is like a million dollars. Yeah, he needs to be as far as away from the Iron Sheik as possible. And thank God that's coming soon. But uh, that's what stuck out to me is that Ron Simmons does not need to be around the Iron Sheik. He should be fine by himself with the look he has going right now. You know what caught me off guard here was the Iron Sheik referring to Ron Simmons as a Muslim brother. So the storyline makes a little more sense with an All-American turning Muslim. And they reference later on in the promo, I, I cut it out because it, it becomes incoherent when everybody's rambling at the same time. But Iron Sheik uh, references uh, Muhammad Ali. He references Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So Ron Simmons, another athlete, uh, going to follow in those footsteps, but he doesn't have a name change yet. He hasn't taken on a Muslim name. So he's still just Ron Simmons, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me here. But that's the story we have. And the Sheik is apparently looking for Ron, a tag team partner, which apparently becomes the Cuban assassin, at least for like one or two weeks anyway. We move on with the show, and we learn during a bumper going into commercial that the Z-Man is coming, and it continues to be a mystery, as Gordon Sully pointed out on an episode of the Power Hour. We learn the Z-Man is coming, but that's all we know about him at this point in time. Hopefully we are not let down when the Z-Man arrives at the Clash. Hopefully not. One thing that does let me down they let the Freebirds on here with a promo. It's a fabulous Freebirds promo. Jimmy Garvin takes on Bobby Eaton tomorrow on the main event. Michael Hayes says Missy Hyatt is sexually frustrated. Somehow I doubt that. I think she can figure out what she needs to do on her own there, Michael. But whatever you say, this is a nothing promo. It leads to a nothing match. More fabulous Freebirds as they're in the ring taking on Bob Emery and Mark Smith. Five minutes just for Jimmy Garvin to hit a DDT on Mark Smith. Get the win in five minutes, 11 seconds. I did like how Jim Cornette said Michael Hayes was doing his best move, jumping out of the ring and stalling, basically. So that was another fun shoot comment by Jim Cornette here. Other than that, this match was absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's just like every other thing else. Everything else the Freebirds have been doing lately, nothing. <laughs> I don't mind the story they're telling with the Steiners. I just hope that we get at least one decent match out of it. And it's uh, more promo time, this time with world champion Nature Boy Ric Flair. He talks Clash of the Champions 8. It's Funk and Muda taking on Flair and Sting. Ric Flair says he's going to wash Muda's paint off his face with his own sweat, and then he's going to make Terry Funk bleed. To close the promo, I was surprised Ric Flair kind of puts over Brian Pillman out of nowhere as uh, Pillman has a match coming up here in the ring. So uh, Ric Flair makes sure to get uh, one of the new talents over now that he's Booker. Name drops Brian Pillman in here. And then he puts over the big match. They have the main event at the Clash of the Champions. Yeah, he did a good job um, getting his match over. It was different. You know, talking about sweating and things like that. To get, basically, Mood is going to have to work a little longer uh, this time around than what he's used to. So, yeah, I thought it was a solid promo. It, it did what it was supposed to do. Back to the ring flying. Brian takes on Fred Avery. Norman comes out during the match. He starts to try to climb up to the top rope, but Brian Pillman drop kicks Norman off to the floor. Teddy Long is quickly out to escort Norman away with the key, and Air Pillman gets the win here. Two minutes and 27 seconds, a win by Brian Pillman. Action continues in the ring. It's the Steiner brothers with Missy Hyatt and Robin Green. 
They're taking on the team of the Bounty Hunter and the Cruel Connection. Two mask guys out there. Pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> this one starts off, uh, as usual, uh, with some comedy from Rick Steiner here. And I, I don't know that if this would have got over with just anyone, but Rick takes Cruel Connection's green cape and wears it like he's Superman around the ring. Pretty fun stuff by Rick Steiner as he gets going. And Jim Cornette says for the first time in his life, he's even speechless. Oh, Lord. All right, I love Rick Steiner. Man. As the match gets going, Scott Steiner nails the Frankensteiner on one member of the Cruel Connection, or on the only member of the Cruel Connection at this point. Jim Cornette asks Jim Ross if that move has a name yet. Jim Ross says, no, it doesn't. So maybe the wheels are spinning in Cornette's head. Coming up with an idea for the Frankenstein, the name of the Frankensteiner. I don't know who ends up naming it. Anyways, match goes uh, 4 minutes, 19 seconds. Rick Steiner with the belly-to-belly on the Bounty Hunter to get the win there. And it's promo time with the Steiners, and they're accompanied by both Robin Green and Missy Hyatt. Similar, very similar to the worldwide promo. Lots of the same stuff repeated by Scott Steiner in this promo. It's really fairly identical. He wants to know what happened with woman, the change in her features, how she looks completely different. And he even says the same thing again. If Rick's happy, then Scott's happy. It's very identical to the uh, syndicated promo here. And the Steiners will take on the Freebirds one more time, this time for the World Tag Team titles again at Clash of the Champions. Yeah, if anybody can get a good match out of the Freebirds, it'd be the Steiner brothers because they're, they they're strong enough and big enough to just make them work more than anything. I, I know you mentioned that before where Rick made them do a bumper or things like that. So getting them in the ring there with the Steiner brothers should give us a somewhat decent match. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was just a week or so ago that the Steiners had a fairly decent match, or not the Steiners, the Freebirds had a fairly decent match with the Midnights on TV. So if the Midnights can make them, you know, watchable, then I'm sure the Steiners can do the same thing. And we've seen the Steiners wrestle the Birds on TV, but I feel like at the Clash it would be, hopefully, would be the, the next level. So maybe, hopefully a little better. Main event time on the show. It is Sting taking on Dick Slater, and there's no toilet to be found, so the action will take place in the ring. Dick Slater arrives on the scene last week. Challenging Sting, apparently, is what happened last week. We didn't get to see it, but they refresh us here this week, and that's why this match is even happening. Sting on top early, but Dick Slater takes over with great old-school heel work here and an awesome-looking punch. One big wind-up punch on the floor. It looks so legit. Great spot by Dick Slater. Just wipes Sting out with one simple little punch on the floor. When I say old-school, by the way, when I said Dick Slater takes, off with, uh, takes over with old-school heel work, when I say that, I mean it in a good way. It was excellent heel storytelling here by Dick Slater. He was still looking really good here in 1989. Slater takes a bump to the floor, and Sting decides he's going to go for a big dive over the top rope and damn near clears Slater as he barely cut, catches Slater's head as he takes him down to the ground on the outside. Hell of a, a dive there by Sting, almost overshooting Slater out there. And they're back up outside trading punches when Terry Funk and the Great Muda show up to attack Sting, causing a disqualification. Sting will get the win in 12 minutes. The action continued on the outside. It's all of the heels. Put a beat down on Sting. Ric Flair runs in to try to make the save. Takes a nasty kick from the Great Muda, and he goes down immediately, too. So now it's three on two. The heels on top of Sting and Flair until Brian Pillman, of all people, hits the ring. Air Pillman on Dick Slater, but he's beat down quickly right after that by Muda and Funk. And, oh, my God, I'm looking at this in the ring, and I'm thinking, Brian Pillman versus any of these guys, even Dick Slater. What a fun match with Brian Pillman versus Funk. Brian Pillman versus Muda. Wow, that would have been something else. And Ric Flair winds up cleaning the ri- clearing the ring with the branding iron himself. But Dick Slater isn't going anywhere. Flair repeatedly, I believe three times in a row, smashes the branding iron 
over the left shoulder of Dick Slater, and he sells it as if it's broken as he uh, escapes the ring. What'd you think of the match? What'd you think of the aftermath? What'd you think of Brian Pillman getting involved? Uh, I thought this was a great match. It was pretty entertaining for TV. Um, obviously, you don't want to you don't want to make it like a pay per view or clash type pay per like you know big time match like that. But I thought it was a very entertaining match. I thought Dick Slater looked awesome. Uh, he's in great shape still, and uh, he had an impressive look to me as far as like like we talked about earlier, one of those tough guys that you really don't want to mess with. Uh, so they're instantly believable when they're in the ring. And then the finish, I thought it was a great job of getting the paper, the clash hyped up, you know, just doing more to lead to that. And it was really cool to see Pillman out there. Obviously, they just brought him in. He hasn't really been doing much. He had the stuff with Norman. But I think they clearly see something in him right away, and they want to get him, Not maybe not necessarily on the fast track, but just give him a few things, you know, in the main event scene just to get his feet wet, to see how he handles it and things like that. And this is where I seen, like, it makes you wonder if they were kind of lead towards like a four horsemen type deal, but was like a, a good guy, you know, a face iteration of it instead of, you know, the heels. Uh, Cause what a team you'd have with Flair, Pillman and Sting get a fourth guy in there and uh, you're good to go. Well, I'm looking uh, at it like this too. You got, you got the JTEX. There's three guys. You need three guys to offset that. So it works out here. Well, it's unfortunate that Pillman's also stuck in a few with Norman, at least for, at least until the clash anyway. So it's uh, kind of interesting that they chose Brian Pillman. Obviously, Ric Flair chose Brian Pillman for this spot. So it looked at this point like things, good things were coming uh, for Brian Pillman here. Would have really been fun. And I just I, I look around and Dick Slater shows up immediately after Ric Flair takes the book too. And, and let me tell you something about Dick Slater. He is criminally underrated. Maybe not so much by historians or people who grew up watching Dick Slater wrestle, but pretty much by anybody else who came along after that era. And uh, if anybody just remembers Dick for his time in the mid-90s in WCW, replacing Terry Funk as part of the stud stable, then uh, you, you need to go back and educate yourself on Dick Slater in Florida, in Mid-South. Just uh, a tremendous top-of-the-line wrestler. Not, not even, it's not even about him being a heel, just a wrestler. He was one of the best during his era, and obviously Ric Flair remembered that. And uh, it's pretty quick that Dick Slater pops up here in the NWA after Ric Flair gets the book and immediately gets thrust into the main event uh, heel stable. So Flair obviously thought he, he had something here in Dick Slater. And like I said, it's just unfortunate if all, if all you know Dick Slater for is his stud stable run where they're basically an underneath tag team for the most part. And obviously he's also past his prime by there. He's still looking good here, though. And that was a, a really good segment. And immediately following the segment, we go to a Terry Funk. Well, it's more of a Gary Hart promo. Gary Hart says, if you don't succeed at first, you try, try again. The JTEX Corporation are coming back. And sooner or later, it will work for them because they keep trying. They almost had Flair and Sting this time. Next time, they might get them for sure. And then Terry Funk interrupts the promo to alert Gary Hart that Dick Slater's hurt. He's seriously hurt. So Hart goes to take off and check on him. Uh, so I think the story coming out of this, according to the way Jim Ross and Cornette played up anyways, Slater may be selling a broken arm, like basically a week into his tenure here in the NWA. I, I know he's not out very long if he is out at all, but I thought it was funny that there that they're selling it like that. Funk tells Gary Hart to go check on Slater. He's hurt bad. And then Terry closes the show in classic comedy fashion of Terry Funk uh, being a, a heel. He said that what Ric Flair did with that branding iron was uncalled for. And unsportsmanlike, and we close the show with Terry Funk. Uh, at least, you know, at least the heels aren't being 
insulting our intelligence and things like that. They're saying, you know, we, we, we haven't done what we wanted to do, but we're going to keep on trying until we do. And uh, I, I like that part. That was pretty cool because you don't really hear that. We move on to Sunday night NWA main event to close this episode of The Grenade. It's August 27th, hosted by Polly Dangerously and Jim Ross, taping from Cleveland, Ohio, back on August 15th, and we're lucky this week. The announcers for this episode of the main event, the commentators, are Polly and Lance Russell. We kick the show off in a big way. It's Sid Vicious taking on poor Lee Scott. Poor, poor Lee Scott here. As Lee Scott no-sells a shoulder tackle, doesn't go down, but he goes down right afterwards as Sid lands a clothesline that, well, you, you have to go to our Twitter account and watch this match. I can't do it justice here just talking about it. It's up on our new YouTube channel at the Wrestling Memory Grenade on YouTube, and it's up on Twitter. Sid just kills poor Lee Scott here. I believe something like five moves in total. It starts with a clothesline that sees Lee land upside down on his head, and then Sid Vicious picks him up. And for the first time since Dwayne Bruce, Sid Vicious with a press slam to the floor and, of course, Lee Scott takes the move. But he's not done there. Sid follows him outside, picks him back up in a press slam, presses him back into the ring over the top rope. Oh, my. And then it's time for the alley copter, the whirlybird spinning powerbomb type move. At this point, Polly Dangerously just keeps yelling, the suicide. So I'm not sure if one of these moves, he's trying to call it the suicide, or if he's just saying that Sid is uh, assisting Lee Scott in committing suicide here, but the powerbomb ends the match. An entertaining hell of a match. Five moves in a minute and 29 seconds. Sid Vicious picks up the win, and holy shit, I smell another jobber of the month, Troby, in his future. Jesus Christ. Yeah, if anything, this match solidified it. That clothesline, man, I don't know if he flipped on purpose just to sell it or if the impact just sent him flying because Sid laid that in. The crowd popped, like, massive and uh Sid gets down on his knee and does this thing that he does and the whole match he's like hot dogging it he's supposed to be the heel and he's hot dogging it and this crowd like it just every move it gets higher and higher and higher the comment I have down here is no wonder Sid got over he beat the shit out of people he didn't give a damn and whether he was face or heel he didn't care either he was gonna hot dog to the crowd and when you have somebody like that, the crowd's going to gravitate towards them. There's no way you can't. And, yeah, uh, you you hear tell of those stories where people say, well, wrestling's fake, but this here, this angle, that's real. Or this here, this wrestler, now his matches are real. You can't watch these matches, these Sid Vicious matches, and come out of them going, eh, that wrestling's fake. Yeah, that guy, no, he, he learned to bump like that. You don't learn to bump on your head. Poor Lee Scott here. And you, you wondered if Lee meant to take kind of try to take that, that bump. I think it's a combination. I think it's Lee Scott trying to take a similar bump and Sid kind of helping it along to the point where you don't have control of your body anymore. So you're in the air attempting to take your own type of bump, but now somebody else has their body, you know, forcing you. And that's how it lands. And poor Lee Scott here, just terrible, terrible, nasty bump. And the rest of the match looked badass, but it was that clothesline that really did it for me. And, uh, yeah, Sid Vicious looks like a world beater here after this one. It looks amazing, man. The show goes on. We get the uh, music video again of the skyscrapers uh, following that Sid Vicious. So if you didn't get enough during that match, we see a little more after the match. 
Uh, good, good, good place to insert the skyscrapers video there. And it's Freebirds promo time, the exact opposite of what we were just watching. Bobby Eaton doesn't stand a chance tonight when he takes on Jimmy Garvin in the main event. Back to the ring, Ron Simmons teaming up with his new fellow friend, the Cuban assassin. They're managed by the Iron Sheik now, taking on hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert, Wildfire, Tommy Rich. I have a lot to say here. About a minute in progress, it seems like, according to the announcers, uh, the ring announcer uh, calling the time. Apparently, Eddie Gilbert is no longer allowed to even be accompanied to the ring by his own woman, Missy Hyatt. He's out here just with Tommy Rich. Fun note, last fall, Ron Simmons, Eddie Gilbert, they were tag team partners in the finals of the U.S. Tag Title Tournament. I'm actually shocked that Paul E. didn't bring that up here. As the match got going, I was hoping Ron Simmons, Eddie Gilbert, could offset the rest hold warriors of Tommy Rich and the Cuban Assassin. Didn't really seem to work too much. I did think Eddie picked things up a little bit, but Tommy Rich was in the ring uh, just far too much. Iron Sheik ringside. I didn't see him at ringside to start, but he's down there eventually waving that Ayatollah flag. Wouldn't it be fun if Sheiky came down and tried to talk Simmons and the Cuban into leaving one another? Like, he, he's forgetting that they're, they're a faction now, and Sheik's, you know, crack's a hell of a drug. I don't know if anybody ever told you that, Steve. I could see Sheiky wandering down here. Aron Simon, you leave this Cuban assassin. But you picked him out for me, Sheiky. Like, I, I don't know. I just, sometimes I get, when I get bored, I fantasy book. Would have been fun. If you're going for comedy, that would have worked for me anyway. <laughs> Or maybe just how about we have Iron Sheik forget he's a manager and he just disappears. <laughs> Sounds more well, that, that, to me. That's funny you say that. I don't know that we're going to see Sheik here within a matter of another week or two. So <laughs> this oh, thank you. Thank very short-lived, very short-lived. You know, uh, Ric Flair's taking over the book. He's trying to clean up a little bit, and Iron Sheik's part of it. Anyways, the heels wind good up getting riddance. heat. What's that? I said good riddance. The heels get some heat on Tommy Rich finally. We get a hot tag to Eddie Gilbert. No crowd noise for Eddie Gilbert. I felt bad for him. And it's not the fault of Eddie Gilbert, but rather the shit he's been stuck with here. Hot shot on the Cuban. But referee Tommy Young is too busy with Tommy Rich and Ron Simmons in the corner. So the Iron Sheik, did you, did you watch this? It was, just, it was sad. It was kind of pathetic. The Iron Sheik, bad legs and all, uh, uh, repeatedly tries to slide into the ring in order to interfere, and he can't get into the ring. He has to grab the rope to pull himself into the ring. <laughs> it's, it was really sad, honestly, to be honest with you. After three chi- tries, the Iron Sheik finally gets in the ring with and nails Eddie Gilbert in the back with a flagpole. If you didn't see that coming after waiting 30 seconds for this spot, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> and the Cuban assassin, the Cuban assassin pins Eddie Gilbert, if you have any idea of what's going on here. The heels get the win at 11 minutes. So I think the match in total went 12 minutes. So we get 11 minutes of it and fuck me and fuck everyone else too. I don't, Tommy rich is feuding with uh, whatever the hell you want to call it with Lex Luger. He's stuck in a tag team match here on the main event on the losing end to have Ron Simmons and the Cuban assassin who are pretty much low end job guys or high end job guys themselves. And at the same time, Eddie Gilbert's the one doing a job to the Cuban assassin. Just what the fuck? Yeah, that sums it up perfect, man. I mean, this match was terrible. Uh, I was like, oh, it's joined in progress. So it shouldn't get all of it, and then we only lose a minute. So uh, very boring. I like Ron Simmons. Uh, I like Eddie Gilbert. The rest of it was just trash. And, uh, yeah, this match wasn't very good at all. Uh, and I did pick up on the Sheik struggling. I mean, <laughs> like you said, it's it's funny, but it's not like 
it's unfortunate to see him where he can't even really get into the ring. And somehow that may- continues to wrestle for at least another couple of years. Yeah, you, you, if you want to call it wrestling. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, I have to wonder, is that what did it? Is that what Ric Flair saw? Did he, he already, obviously nobody's a fan of this entire storyline, this entire angle. But did he see that and go, dude, this guy can't even run. I, I, if you can't run interference as a manager, we're out of shit for you, dude. Because you, you can't wrestle yeah. at this point. And your promos, as fun as they are, they don't make a whole lot of sense. You're not going to sell tickets. So you're a manager now. That's the best, best thing we can do for you in order, in order to pay you while you work on TV. And he can't even do that right. And so it's, it's pretty much the end of the Iron Sheik here. I, I would imagine either here or within the next couple of weeks. I, I know there's some things already recorded, so might have to watch those play out. But I'm pretty sure the Sheik, uh, for the most part, is gone. And we head into a commercial, and I, and I rarely talk about commercials here unless it's something I really enjoy. But there was a, this was during the era of TBS where they came up with the TBS slogan. I used to love the song. I love the commercials. They used to show a lot of syndicate, all the old shows that went into syndication. So they would air shows like good times. So we see in this particular commercial, JJ, uh, Jimmy Walker, dynamite out here, but we saw Ric Flair in this commercial too. He's it's advertised the, the spot he's slamming. I think it's possibly Trent Knight. I'm not sure in the commercial, but it's done specifically for, the commercial and, I, and he gives a big thumbs up into the camera and as as hokey as it was, I had never seen the wrestlers incorporated into one of the TBS commercials before this being probably one of the early ones here in the, in the uh, whole TBS slogan. So pretty cool to see Ric Flair is one of these because I've seen the leave it to beaver guys in these commercials. I've seen the good times, Jimmy, Jimmy Walker in them. I've seen Gilligan and the skipper in there for the Gilligan's Island show, but Ric Flair kind of made it to a commercial here. I thought it was pretty cool. It's like big time when you when you when you're actually being advertised by the channel for once, a wrestler on a commercial. I usually fast forward through the commercials, but I did stop on this one because I saw I saw a wrestling ring. So I'm gonna watch it, see what's going on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Obviously, Turner just bought him. Better advertise him, and uh, they stuck him right in the middle of these commercials that were really prevalent in the, this time frame, and. Uh, like you said, it gives it a bigger feeling. Oh, wow, they're actually advertising. They actually care about their products. So, um, yeah, really solid stuff. Yeah, and I actually I clipped that commercial out of the show, too, and I put that up on our new YouTube channel, and I put that up on Twitter as well, not just because I wanted a reason to listen to the music, because I, I love the TBS song, and then Ric Flair being involved in it just made it all the more better here. But we're back on TV, and it's a Jim Cornette promo. Remember, we've got a match coming up with Bobby Eaton and Jimmy Garvin here in a couple minutes. Stan Lane is out due to a hand injury in the tag team match at the War Games. But this week, Stan's taking the day off. Bobby Eaton will get the win tonight one-on-one against Jimmy Garvin. And then the Midnight Express will get another shot at the World Tag Team titles. And we go to the ring for that match. It's Garvin and Bobby Eaton. Stan Lane early on down to ringside. Even though he had taken the night off, apparently he was still in the arena. 
as he's out there to even the odds with Jimmy Garvin accompanied by Michael Hayes. It only makes sense that Stan Lane's out here to help out his partner Bobby Eaton. And Michael Hayes gets on the mic right away looking for that cheap heat, telling the fans don't call us sissies, looking for that reverse psychology to get a sissy chant going. Honestly, I had the birds tuned out. I don't know if a chant picked up or not. I like to think it didn't. But the match gets going. Jimmy Garvin tries with the upper hand early on, but Bobby Eaton takes control. Stan Lane distracts referee Nick Patrick, and Jim Cornette whacks Garvin on the outside with a tennis racket. So even though the Midnights are baby faces, they're still getting away with some heel things here, and the crowd loves it. The crowd eats it up. Michael Hayes goes nuts that Jim Cornette got away with this. So Eaton pops him one, too, with a quick jab on the floor for good measure. Bobby Eaton charges into a boot in the corner, and Jimmy Garvin, though, finally takes over with a chin lock because Freebirds. Match goes on. Jimmy Garvin this time rushes into the corner himself and lands himself into the tree of woe. In an, uh, it was a very unnatural spot. Jimmy Garvin trying to jump up high enough to miss whatever the hell he was going for in the corner to lock himself into the tree of woe upside down. Match goes on. Garvin and Eaton wind up colliding. Eaton goes down. Garvin bumps back against the ropes. He's resting on the ropes. Michael Hayes comes over and pushes Garvin on top of Eaton, identical to how Gordy aided Hayes to win the U.S. title. Paulie even points that out. Kind of broke kayfabe a little bit there, if you ask me, or reminding people, hey, we've seen this spot before by the same guys. Uh, some of the same guys, anyway. Pretty cool, though, but Bob Eaton kicks out here. And while Stan Lane takes it to Hayes on the floor, Jimmy Garvin in the ring tries the O'Connor roll, but Bobby Eaton ducks into the ropes, and Lane blasts Garvin on the apron. Eaton with a schoolboy, and Bob Eaton picks up the win over Jimmy Garvin here, 10 minutes, 58 seconds, and... Man, this finish is completely overdone here. This O'Connor roll shit, we've seen it used with the birds to the Midnights, to the Dudes, and the Steiners. Then the Militia and the Dudes with the, with the canteen spot, and now here with the Midnights on the Freebirds. And I bet I'm forgetting some in, in between all this, but let's see some creativity here. How many times, it's like somebody just came up with this, hey, you do the O'Connor roll, and then somebody will interfere and, and turn things over. I, I, we've just seen it so damn much here in the last couple of months. Yeah, it seems like it's one of those things that, like you said, somebody came up with it, they liked it, and now they're just going to use it over and over and over. Uh, I guess it's the easy way to kind of protect your, your teams. If they're going to do the job, at least they're not like getting dropped with a finisher and pin. But yeah, there's, there's millions of ways to do that. A float over, you know, just a number of ways that you can actually protect yourself as far as your status goes. If you're going to take a job, do the job. So. Yeah, come up with something better, guys. Come on. I, I don't mind the spot, but everybody, every tag team has is, is used this spot yeah. repeatedly now over the last couple of months. So we close the show with Jim Ross and Paul E. Paul E says that Lance Russell is a star now, that he did commentary with Paul E for an entire hour with Dangerously saying that Lance was nothing for 25 years, but now he's a star. Jim Ross admits that Lance is the best, even better than JR. Surprised Ross would admit that. Paulie puts his arm around Ross while speaking to him, and Jim Ross says he saw Paulie's purple underwear at the bash and kindly asks him to remove his arm from around his shoulder. Paulie says he's man enough to do a show in his underwear. Hell, he'll do it naked. That's a sight I don't want to see. And that concludes this episode of the main event. That concludes this edition of The Grenade, Steve. Yeah, uh, Jim Cornette, or Jim Ross has been pointing out ever since the bash about his underwear and talking about how only people in San Francisco buy those, that color of underwear and things like that. So I'm not surprised they took it here on TV with him and on the main event. So I don't know. It's whatever, but yeah, a solid show. Uh, the main event was fun. Um, I mean, we got two big name matches. 
not necessarily the greatest, but it, it's better than, you know, one one squash match after another and then Sid just killing Lee Scott, man. <laughs> yeah, easily the most entertaining on the show was the Sid Vicious match, I'd have to say. But uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't a bad episode in general. I'm not really a big fond of the tag match with Cuban and Tommy Rich involved. But overall, I mean, at least they tried. They tried to give us something here. I don't discredit them for that. And that wraps up another two weeks of NWA action. And when we come back next week, it's another two weeks. The first two weeks of September. And in two weeks' time, it's the Clash of the Champions 8 Fall Brawl watch-along. But next week, it's Christmas time. And we're going to do our damnedest to make sure we get the show out on time. We're going to try to record it. A little early anyway. And I just really appreciate Steve, man. I know you've got a busy holiday schedule. I've got a busy holiday schedule. I know how I work in my brain, though. If I had to, I would try to do things I shouldn't be doing instead of actually dealing with the family. And so I'm going to try to get this shit out of the way so that doesn't happen. I don't want to piss anybody off around here. There's an old saying, happy wife, happy life. That's never rang truer than in my household. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm right there with you. As much as we can get done, we'll get done. And that way, I don't have to hear from the wife that I'm always doing something else. So <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. I know exactly how that goes. So as far as I'm concerned, we should have a show out on the 23rd of December, just in time for Christmas. You guys can listen to it before Christmas, listen to it after Christmas. Whenever you got the time, it'll be there for you. And then, of course, New Year's week, it's Clash of the Champions 8 watch along. So a lot of fun stuff coming up. Steve, I really appreciate you being here one more time. And uh, yeah, man, just uh, keep... Keep the holiday spirit going. Keep doing that last-minute shopping if you have to do that. And if you have any time, man, watch another Christmas movie or two. Home Alone's great, but you need a couple more in your life. I, I watched Christmas Vacation last night, so right. uh, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting some more in. I don't know. I don't really – I don't know. That's about it for me, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do a lot. I don't do a lot of movies. I don't really have a huge tradition of, you know, I, I have to watch this every single year. I might go check out some uh, – Jingle all the way. Oh, yeah. The, my boy Arnold. Put the and, cookie uh, down. Put yeah. the cookie down. <laughs> There's plenty of them out there. Might even go throw in some Santa with muscles, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't go that far. But uh, I'm I'm a big proponent of old school, too. I, I did get in It's a Wonderful Life already. I try to always do that. I enjoy that movie. I don't care if it's played out. And that's not played out for me. And I like uh, a couple of the older uh, Christmas carols, some of the originals. So... Uh, I, I want to get those shows in. And then, like you said, I think Jingle All the Way with the kids. Uh, we did see Jack Frost the other day. So not necessarily one of mine, but I do enjoy watching that with the kids anyway, with Michael Keaton. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I just talk a little Christmas here at the end of the show. But uh, we'll be back next week, and it will be Christmas time. Maybe by then I'll have watched a few more movies. I'll tell you guys all about it. I'm sure you want to hear it. Maybe I'll even try to get in Scrooged with Bill Murray. Uh, Murray is one of my uh, favorites from the eighties. So we'll see, we'll see what I can do. And maybe you'll even watch another movie or two. We'll, we'll have to talk about that, but we'll see what happens. Yes. Until that, not, not that everybody cares, or maybe you do care. I hope you care a little bit. Uh, I care about you guys. I want you guys to go out there and enjoy the holiday season as well. I got to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Even, even if we're still a week out a a very Merry Christmas already. And Steve, man, I I look forward to doing another one of these here this week. Another uh, episode, two more weeks of the grenade. Me too, man. I'm looking forward to it, and I can't wait to get to that clash. I don't, I don't remember too much of it, so I'm excited to do that watch along for New Year's week. So, uh, a lot of good stuff coming up here on the grenade. A lesser talked about clash, which is really unfortunate. You hear about Clash Six with Steamboat and Flair. Everybody knows Clash Nine with Funk and Flair. Uh, seven, it's it it typically rings a bell just because of the 
the layout. It's it's Fort Bragg, and and it sticks out in, the, in that reason alone. Not not counting the wrestling action in the ring. Eight seems to be forgotten at times, and it's really underrated. If, last time I watched it, I was just really blown away with how, how many good matches or, or fairly good matches there were on the show, and matches I didn't even remember <laughs> until I saw them. So yeah, yeah it's going to be fun. I, I I look forward to that one. Uh, until next time, guys. Uh, Steve, man, just appreciate you being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. And once again, I've got to say thanks to all of our loyal listeners. We appreciate you listening, subscribing, and downloading The Grenade. You can find The Grenade, Monday Warfare, the WrestleCopia News Network, and other upcoming podcasts over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com. And all of your favorite podcast streaming apps from Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Google Pod, Podcast Addict, and so many more. Remember to follow The Grenade on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Lastly, I encourage everyone once again to please have a look at our Patreon account over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. I encourage you to please subscribe at least one month. Give it a try and join in on the fun. There's no commitment. Cancel it any time. But we'd like to think you'll stick around based on the offerings available. It's 14 tiers of goodies over there, and it all starts as low as a buck. A $1 tier. We've really been pumping out a series of watch-alongs ranging from the WWF Coliseum video series to random pay-per-views, including 1995 pay-per-views that make a great complimentary piece to the Monday Warfare podcast. Also on Patreon, our Power Hour podcast is now up and running, where we review the current product, recent pay-per-views, and discuss a variety of topics from every era. It's unfiltered, uncensored, and nothing is off-limits on the Power Hour podcast. We invested quite a bit of money into the podcast network up front. We want to keep the Grenade, Monday Warfare, and other planned podcasts up and running for 2021. So we'd greatly appreciate your subscription to ensure that we continue to produce quality products each and every week. So please stop over. That address again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. And please subscribe, show some love, let us know you care, let us know you're there. And with all of that out of the way, it's that time again. Time to say goodbye, but we will return next week. And until that time, this is Ray Russell, and for my co-host Stephen Ekstat saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there! You are coming from New York City, intelligent Jew American to the TBS.